music. It's not just part of our daily lives, it's part of our wrestling fandom as well, and it has been for decades. That's where this show comes in, Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling, hosted by Andrew Rich. Hey, that's me. Each episode delivers a different topic with a variety of great guests, fun conversations, musical analysis, and of course, a heartfelt pun or two. New episodes drop every other Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. Check out Music of the Mat only on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. What do you guys want to talk about? You are listening to the Flagship Podcast with your hosts, Joe Lanza. If this story was any good, maybe you people would understand it. You don't even understand the story. It's all it goes over everybody's head. How great can it be? Maybe they need to talk more during these matches. And Rich Crage. This is my entire life's goal is to be a WWE superstar. And now I am the NXT women's champion. You can take that. If you want that, great. Good for you. I want MJF talking about getting roadhead. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I want out of my wrestling. Call me old fashioned, Joe. You, it is the flagship podcast. Not live this week, but still hitting the feeds. I'm Joe. We got a big time podcast today. This is the best wrestling podcast in the world. You know that? It really is. I love this podcast. I love doing it. I love listening to it. I do this podcast for three hours a week. And then I listen to the entire show again that same night for three more hours. I do that every week. One reason I do that is I'm a complete psychopath. The other reason I do that is to check my work, so to speak, take notes, See what we can do better. See what mistakes I made, which I then will never correct. But I love this podcast, and I love doing this podcast. And I got a big-time podcast for you guys this week. While the always-vacationing Captain Creech is off bouncing around. Let me check the notes here. Southwest Utah. Well, while Rich is spurlunking in southwest Utah and looking at canyons and stalactites and stalagmites and spurlunking into caves with the little helmet with the light gimmick on the on the on the uh, on the front, I'm here working. That's right, giving you guys another three hour. Professional wrestling audio adventure. A little later on, Andrew Rich, the producer, is going to join the show. We're going to talk about New Japan. We're going to give you a solid hour plus of in-depth New Japan content, breaking down Capital Collision from Washington, D.C., and then Collision in Philadelphia, both shows from last weekend. Full reviews of both of those shows. Plus previews of the 
Wrestling Dantaku Tour that kicked off, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, sometime in the last 24 to 72 hours. So we'll preview all of the big matches coming up on the Wrestling Dantaku Tour. Then later on, after that, we'll do another catch-up on All Japan's Carnival Tournament. We're now four days in. Take a look at Pro Wrestling Noah in Sendai, where Jake Lee had his first GHC title defense on a big-time show in Sendai for Pro Wrestling Noah. The Green Journey in Sendai. Listen, I don't name the shows. I just review them. We're even going to do a little MLW. little MLW. Because why not? MLW had a rough couple of weeks on TV. And we'll take a look at that a little bit later as well. And who knows what else will come up. On the greatest wrestling podcast to ever exist. Gotta start with AEW. Nowhere else to start. You know, those of you who listen to my Thursday Dynamite reviews. And I've been doing those since the advent of AEW Dynamite in 2019. You know that up until about, I don't want to say six weeks ago, let's call it up until about the run-up to Revolution. So let's say, let's place it at around the Laredo Dynamite, which I believe was on February 15th, and I'm going to double check it as I'm talking. The Freakazoids will know the exact date. All you got to do is say the city. Hey, when was the Dayton Dynamite? February 1st. Every Freakazoid knows. They can run down the card. These people are insane. Um, anyway, yeah, it was the February 15th Laredo Dynamite. Ever since somewhere around that show. Okay. Dynamite has been a very uneven show at best. Prior to that, in my reviews, and I've reviewed every single Dynamite with the exception of one that Rich Krejci stepped in for one time when I was on vacation, I have probably given positive reviews to 95% of Dynamite's all time up until February 15th in Laredo, Texas. And I have to tell you, the run-up to that show from about, I don't know, early December until early February was arguably the greatest run that Dynamite ever had. And we talked about that a ton, both behind the paywall and even on this show here. And then things fell off a cliff with that terrible show in Laredo. And I would say that ever since then, And we're talking almost about three months worth of shows. Dynamite has not only been uneven, and they all haven't been bad. There have been some bad ones. There have been some that have been okay. 
There have been none that I would call good. Reasonable minds can disagree. You may have enjoyed some or all of these. But since that Laredo episode, and most definitely since the Missouri swing and independence in St. Louis, let's call it the red, white, and blue ropes era. The independence show was on March 22nd. The St. Louis show the week after that. It's when they changed the color of the ropes. And really since that six or seven week period especially. But you could take it back as far as Laredo. Even if you've enjoyed the Dynamites. More than I have. I think it's fair to say. That something has changed. There's been a tonal shift. In the shows. They're they're just different. For years, Dynamite was built on great matches, great promos, the best promos in wrestling. And being different than the other guys, than those other guys. WWE, Raw and SmackDown. That's really what the calling cards of Dynamite have been. Great matches. The best promos in wrestling, great action, and being a true alternative and being completely different than the competition. That's always been the calling card and the hallmark of AEW, and in particular, Dynamite on Wednesday nights. And that just hasn't been the case over this recent run of shows. And it's gone on for so long now, whether you trace this back to February 15th, or whether you want to be a little more charitable and trace it back to those shows in Missouri, the shows just feel different. We don't get great matches every week anymore. And during that super hot run before Revolution, up until the last few shows before Revolution... We were filling up the notebook watching those Dynamites. There were two, sometimes three, legitimately great matches every single week on the show. And great promos and great action. All of the things that have made Dynamite, what I am on record as saying, the best pro wrestling television show to ever exist. Pound for pound to ever exist. And I mean that. And I still think it is. But where is that show gone? That show doesn't exist anymore. And it's been more than a a couple of weeks slump. We've seen those before. We've seen this show hit some slumps that last two or three weeks, but then they bounce right back. This has been like three months of shows where we're not just not getting the great matches we're accustomed to and the great promos and the great action. But there's been a clear shift in how the stories on the show have been presented. And that's been the big change. And for those of you who listen to my review of this week's Dynamite, I mean, you, you can look at the title. It's right there. $5 tier behind the paywall. Wednesday Night Raw. Because that's what it felt like. And we have been... Crawling up to this point for the last 
couple of months with this Dynamite show. 20-minute opening promo segments. Destroying people's cars. Can they coexist tag team matches seemingly every week, either on Dynamite or Rampage? Losing team must join the winning team's faction. The heel champion now all of a sudden has matchmaking powers. We have stuff like QTV, which is straight off of NXT. MJF handing a blank check to Sammy Guevara to take a dive. I mean, it's all derivative sports entertainment, WWE-like junk. And listen, it's not as if this kind of stuff hasn't always existed on Dynamite and hasn't always existed in AEW, because it has. But in the past, you'd maybe get one segment with this garbage. And we'd all roll our eyes. And you just shrug your shoulders and say, well, you know, the whole show can't be for you. Not everything's going to land. It's what Rich likes to refer to as the brandy segment. You'd get like one brandy segment a week, meaning one terrible segment that everybody hates. And some people would choose to hyper-focus on that and ignore that the other two hours and 45 minutes, or one hour and 45 minutes, I have Raw on the brain, as you can see. The show reminds me of Raw now. Despite the fact that the other one hour and 45 minutes was incredible, with great matches and great promos and another kick-ass two hours of TV, everyone would hyper-focus on the Brandy segment, right? But this week's Dynamite was nothing but Brandy segments. The vast majority of the show was a Brandy segment. And this wasn't a one-off. We've been crawling up to this point for the last couple of months. At minimum. Because there is a clear change of tone in how this show is being presented and how the stories are being told. And I believe it's undeniable. There's a ton of WWE bullshit on this show now every week. And it peaked on this week's show. It's gotten to the point where I don't look forward to this show anymore. As a big time wrestling fan, as someone who was brought back into the fold as an American television wrestling fan. After WWE ran me off and Impact has never been able to win me over. AEW succeeded where those companies could not. Dynamite was very often one of the highlights of my week from an entertainment standpoint. Something to look forward to. Wake up on Wednesday, it's Dynamite Day. I don't have that feeling anymore. I didn't turn the show off this week thinking I can't wait to watch the next week. 
the last several weeks, I, I, I'm fucking around with my phone waiting for the show to end. Because that hasn't been good. It isn't what it used to be. Something has changed. And I think it's deliberate. We all know Tony Khan is extremely online. That's no secret. Maybe all of the constant criticism that, quote, dynamite doesn't tell stories, end quote, have gotten to him. Now, that was always bullshit. I, I would often contend that dynamite told too many stories. That a typical dynamite was packed too much with story. And was too frenetically paced. And they throw too much at us. And this bullshit false reputation that Dynamite was just loaded with a bunch of meaningless matches. Was never true. I thought Dynamite could have used a few more matches. That didn't have any story behind them and just existed to be good. Because I always felt there was too much story packed into Dynamite. Well, that's still the case now. It's just shitty storytelling. It's WWE-style storytelling. And it's why the show feels so different. And I'm not going to redo my TV review from this week where I totally destroyed... Buried, whatever word you want to use, this week's episode. You can go listen to that on the $5 tier. That's getting rave reviews, by the way. There have been some people who disagreed. But that review is getting, I am getting praise. More praise for that review of this week's Dynamite than I've ever gotten for a review before. That's a fact. So I'm not the only one who is feeling this with Dynamite right now. But Tony Khan has got to get back to what made this show what it was for the first four years of its existence. Three and a half, four years, whatever it is. Great matches. The best matches in the world that you can see on TV. There's no doubt about that. Great action. Cutting edge action. The best promos in wrestling. And a clear difference from the competition. Because I got to tell you, last night's Dynamite. And some of these recent Dynamites, but especially last night's. Almost indistinguishable from a common Monday Night Raw. From a storytelling perspective. And I don't like saying that. And I don't like watching that. And maybe this just is an extended slump. A creative slump. An in-ring slump. But I don't buy it. The roster's too good. Tony Khan has too good of a history of bouncing back. 
I feel like this change of tone that we've seen with this show is by design, it's deliberate, and it's on purpose. And it's calculated, and this is what they want the show to be. These show-long narratives where you do the long opening promo and, and that story builds throughout the show, which, look, that could be fine if done well. But not when we're destroying cars and doing can they coexist tag matches and not having any of the great matches that we're accustomed to or great promos. We don't have brandy segments anymore. We have brandy shows. And it's disappointing. I don't know why they're going in this direction. Maybe they felt like the ratings have stagnated. Or maybe they felt like they just needed to shake things up. Or I don't know what it is. Maybe there's new people in the room. Maybe... Tony Khan isn't booking this thing anymore. And I got to tell you, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. The show is so different now that I would not be surprised if it comes out that there are new creative forces driving this show with Tony Khan playing more of a CEO or overseer role. And being less hands-on. That wouldn't surprise me at all based on how different this show has been and the junk that we were subjected to this week. And they've and look, they're dropping the ball on some key stuff. This, this world title program that they're building with these pillars has been an absolute bust. And all it has done is is has exposed three of these pillars as not being ready to carry their end of a pay-per-view main event. That's all there is to it. That opening segment last night was an absolute disaster. And not only didn't do any of those guys any favors, but killed all of their momentum and to me proved that they're not ready to carry half of a pay-per-view main event. And MJF's out there on his own doing all the heavy lifting. But then once they did that deal with the blank check, forget it. It just went, it somehow got worse. It somehow got worse. WWE bullshit is what it was. Jay White signs with your company. It's the talk of the wrestling world for a week. Everyone was sure he was going to land in WWE. Is there a hiring freeze? Is there not a hiring freeze? At the end of the day, in this context, it doesn't matter. The perception is you won. You got the guy. He came here. He's yours. And I gave them a pass for how they debuted Jay White with the run-in. When everybody else buried it, I gave it a pass because... I trusted Tony Khan and I trusted this company to eventually get it right. And they haven't gotten it right. 
The guy has cut one 15-second pre-taped promo. One of the best talkers in wrestling. You sign the guy. It's the talk of the wrestling world. He's done a run-in. He's done a 15-second pre-taped promo. And he's wrestled one match that he won against a mid-carder. And then got himself into a feud with Sean Spears. You almost can't make up how badly they've handled Jay White. If you would have told me how this would have... If you would have told me this is how it would have played out over the first three weeks. I would have laughed in your face and said there's no way possible Tony Khan would allow that. Not Mid-South Tony. But see, this isn't Mid-South Tony anymore. This is Mid-Hudson Civic Center Tony. Whose show more resembles Monday Night Raw than it resembles the Dynamites... That we've been accustomed to. I don't know this man anymore. I don't recognize his wrestling. Here's what you do. Tony. When you sign. An international megastar. Who is the talk of the wrestling world. When your company lands him over the competition, you hype up his appearance on Dynamite all week on social media. It's the number one thing you focus on. Jay White speaks this week on Dynamite. We will hear from Jay White. However it is, you guys like to to phrase those things. As soon as the show begins, Excalibur shouts to the audience before anything else. Welcome to Dynamite. This week, we will hear from international superstar Jay White, the hottest free agent in wrestling, who showed up two weeks ago and shocked the world. We will hear from him later on tonight. On AEW Dynamite, Jay White is here. You make sure Taz puts it over. Unbelievable. I can't believe Jay White is here. You make a big deal out of it. You hype it up. You talk about it every time you come out of commercial. You give him the mega entrance. You have him come out and milk it. You have the announcers scream about, I can't believe this man is here. And he's finally going to tell us his intentions. He saunters down to the ring slowly. Exuding that confidence and star power. You scored the biggest free agent in wrestling. You give him a microphone and all the time he wants to one of the greatest talkers in the game and you let him get himself over. You're a promoter. Promote! 
make this man feel like the biggest deal in wrestling. And that he came here because this is the place to be. Has Tony learned nothing from Cody and Vince owning him with what Cody is doing in that company right now? Has he learned nothing from that? That's the template. That is AEW's biggest L. Cody left and he became a bigger star by multitudes than he ever was for you. And it's how they present him. From day one, they presented him like they won the prize. And it worked. And now he's the biggest star in wrestling. You're the talk of the wrestling world when you win the Jay Wright sweepstakes. And how do you present him? He does a run-in, a 15-second pre-taped promo, and he's pulling Sean Spears over a guardrail. Get your shit together. This is December 2019 all over again. And this isn't about Sean Spears or Ricky Starks or Juice Robinson. That could be Jay's first program, but it's all how you present him. And you've presented him like he's just another guy. And Jay's too good. He still was one of the few highlights on Dynamite this week. One of the few. Along with the elite BCC program, which is working and it's great and it has all these layers and you have Takeshita getting involved and Don Callis and Takeshita and what's going to happen there and is Callis eventually going to turn on Omega and Takeshita has the history with Brian Danielson and that's great. I have no complaints about Not everything is terrible. But it is mind-boggling how poorly they have handled Jay White. And that doesn't mean Jay White's dead in the water. That doesn't mean Jay White is buried. They might do everything I just said next week. Or they might do none of it. And Jay White might be so undeniable that he can overcome it all. Because he still looked like a star out there despite the company's best efforts to present him like a mid-carder. But on top of giving us Wednesday Night Raw, they're dropping the ball on this layup. Because Jay White's not the talk of the wrestling world anymore. You missed that. You blew that opportunity to take advantage of the hype around winning the Jay White sweepstakes. That ship sailed. 
It doesn't mean you can't still get it right. But you missed the peak opportunity. And whereas a couple of weeks ago, I had confidence they would get it right with Jay White, I don't anymore. I'm not confident they're going to do what I just said they should do. Or anything resembling that. If you ask me today, if you put the proverbial gun to my head, i tell you he'd be working a mid-card tag team match at the pay-per-view against Ricky Starks and Sean Spears. At best, a singles match against Starks, fifth from the top. That would be my prediction on what Jay White's going to be doing at Double or Nothing. When he should be a very clear focus of the show. Here is our brand new star. We're going to build around this guy for the next decade. He's a really big deal. Here's why. And pound that home to the audience. You're a promoter. Promote. Make a star. When you're handed the opportunity. We're talking about splitting rosters. So I think you could use a few. Speaking of which. Let's talk about this Observer report. CM Punk. We all know at this point, barring something catastrophic, and possibly even if something catastrophic happens, like what happened a few weeks ago, Punk is on his way back in. At this point, I don't think anything can stop that. It's happening. We've had meetings. We've had discussions. We've had Punk nearly blow it up again. But he's coming back. And this Saturday show is coming. We don't know exactly when. Sometime this summer. We think Punk's coming back on that Chicago Dynamite. And according to the Observer report. There's talk of a soft roster split. And the new Saturday show. Being the Punk. Half of the company. Built around Punk. Now, I'm not a fan of splitting rosters. WWE has never gotten that right in 20 years. I don't like the idea of splitting rosters, but you do what you have to do to get Punk back in the fold. Anyone who has watched this recent run of Dynamites knows that this company, this promotion, needs any kind of injection of life and juice that they can get, and CM Punk will give it to them. No matter where you stand on punk. And I'm largely agnostic. If you're being fair, you will admit that he is going to pump some life into the company until he inevitably blows it all up again. So you do what you have to do to get him back. And if that means quarantining him on his own show, I get it. A short-term solution even if you have to sell it as a long-term solution, I understand. And maybe we're all taking the concept of a roster split too far and we're just thinking of it in WWE terms. 
where they're going to quite literally put half the roster on Saturdays and half the roster on Wednesdays. And some guys are going to identify as Wednesday wrestlers and others are going to be identified as Saturday wrestlers. And they're never going to cross pads except at the pay-per-views. Maybe it's more of just, look, the elite are going to be over here with the people who can't stand to be around Punk. Punk is going to be over here with the people who like Punk and don't mind being around them. And the only people who aren't going to cross over on different days of the week are the elite and the truly militant against punks uh, types and punk. And everything else will continue to be fluid. And it will be the quote-unquote soft roster split. With really only the elite and the punk truly split. The punk, I called him. I'm going to leave that in there. And I'm going to call him that from now on. Um, And then we'll see how long that lasts. Maybe that was one of the conditions by some of the people in order to allow Punk to come back without walking out of the company. Who the fuck knows? I don't know. But whatever it takes to get Punk back, you do it. You got to fill a 90,000 seat Wembley Stadium. You got Forbidden Door coming up and you got to sell pay-per-views. You got your own, you know, traditional big four pay-per-views that you do every year, including potentially all out. Who knows? With all in being a week, you know, but you know, you got a bunch of big shows coming up. Punk will be helpful. But I'll tell you what I'm skeptical of. That's this Saturday show being a big deal long term. And I'm going to tell you why. Because we've been down this road before. And we've been down this road with this company. And we've been down this road with Tony Khan. AEW Dark began, if you recall, as a show taped before Dynamite. With mid-card wrestlers in 50-50 matches. No squashes. Good competitive bouts. Sometimes the big stars would even wrestle like Kenny Omega. And then the pandemic happened and Dark changed into something else. And we'll give that a pass. It became a squash show. A tryout show of sorts. And that was all due to the pandemic. So we're not going to place that one on the company. But then they rolled out Rampage. And what did we hear? This is not going to be a B-show. We have two A shows. It will not be a B show. And I believed Tony when he said it. Why? Because he's one of us. And we all know when these companies roll out new shows and insist that they're not going to be B shows, that we all do the jerk off motion, roll our eyes and say, yeah, sure. We know how this goes. It's going to be a B show in a month. But I believe Tony because he's one of us and he was aware of that. And I didn't think he would allow Rampage to slip into being a B-show. And for a while, he was doing a great job. It was the Punk show. It was the place to see CM Punk. CM Punk debuted on Rampage. CM Punk didn't appear on Dynamite for a number of weeks after he debuted. You had, if you wanted to see Punk, you had to see him on Rampage. And Rampage truly was another A-show for a few months. And I was one of the last Rampage defenders even long after it ceased being the punk show. 
there were always title matches and angles and people turning. I was like, Rampage is better than people say it is. It's not a full-on B show. But slowly but surely, it did become one. To now, where it's undeniable. Dark Elevation. When Dark Elevation started. Again, big stars. Angles with Kenny Omega. The whole storyline with Matt Seidel and Takeshita on his first run in the company. The personality profiles. Paul White on commentary. It was different. It may not have been an A-show, but it was something different. Then Dark, and then Rampage, and it was interesting. But it quickly just became Dark 2, a squash show. As Tony lost interest in that one as well. Battle of the Belts. It's going to be just like Clash of the Champions. In the history and the tradition of wrestling on the Turner family of networks. We can't use the name Clash of the Champions. We'll call it Battle of the Belts. Live quarterly specials. It's going to be great. What did we get? A one-hour show with championship matches featuring all of the B titles and secondary contenders. And now it's nothing more than a one than a a, a once every three-month one-hour extension of Rampage in the middle of the night on Friday where we see the ROH six-man titles defended and maybe a TBS title match. Red Velvet's 19th crack at the belt. And somehow that's even become a B-show. Then Tony buys ROH. It's mine. I own it. Great. No one was more enthusiastic about that than I was. Unfortunately, he couldn't sell the television show to his television partners. No problem. I'll put it on Honor Club. Great. I was excited about that. What did ROH Weekly TV turn out to be? Red and Black Dark. Dry, endless, two hours, perfectly competent matches in a dry, stale environment, bereft of promos, bereft of angles. Perfectly competent, but once again, a B-show. Non-essential. So this is now, with this Saturday show, attempt number six of Tony Khan to sell me on the idea that we're getting another big-time AEW show. So forgive me if I don't trust him. And I'm sure it'll start off great. And I'm sure it'll be the punk show like Rampage was. We'll see how long that lasts. Saturday nights on either TNT or TBS, where it's going to be preempted constantly for sports, where it's going to have massive sports competition all year long, college football head-to-head in the fall, prime time, head-to-head with prime-time college football games in the fall, NBA, Major League Baseball, and hockey all year long. How long is this Saturday show 
going to be treated like it's something important? Well, based on history, not very long. You cannot blame me for being skeptical. They no longer automatically earn my optimism. I now have them at arm's length. Again, this is now attempt number six to roll out a a truly meaningful, truly essential second show. Attempt number six. We'll see. Arm's length. Do you know who else I often say arm's length in regards to? We'll be right back with Andrew Rich. All right, we're back, and we're going to do a little bit of New Japan. I am here with the producer, Andrew Rich, Music of the Mat, the Wrestling Podcast Network. Uh, now, you you reviewed both of these for the site, or or did you? Re- which one did you review? I just reviewed the Philly show. Uh, Sean Cedar reviewed the DC show. So we've got them both, but I just did the Philly show. All right, so you did Philly. That's the one we're going to start with anyway. Okay. Uh, no, we're going to start with DC actually, right? Because DC was the – Yes, that was the Saturday show. 15th. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, DC was Capital Collision, and then it was Collision in Philadelphia on the 16th. So uh, let's start with the DC show then. And, um, you know, this opener, this eight – this what was it? A 10-man opener? It was a 10-man opener. So we had Rocky Romero and Volador on opposite sides. Did you happen to see the hair match from about three weeks ago in um, in Arena Mexico or no? I have not. I'm a little behind on CMLL, unfortunately. Um, but I know the result and everything because it's pretty evident that Rocky got his head shaved. So I'm aware of what happened. I just haven't seen it, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, the hair match was a little bit of a letdown. Um, what they did was they had uh, uh, basically a four-way reverse elimination match i guess is the best way to put it where you know the lucha style when when a mask or hair is on the line where um if you score a fall you eliminate yourself so you're not one of the last two Mm -hmm. left and then the last two guys left you know had to have the hair match or whatever and you know it was volador and rocky romero and angel dioro and oroculo and and it was like so obvious who the last two guys are going to be because, you know, Volador has been challenging them in his hair match for, for months now. So that kind of killed the four-way elimination match because there's absolutely no drama. And then, you know, so it comes down to Rocky and Volador and they have the, the hair versus hair match. And it's, I mean, it was fine, but it was nothing special, which was a little disappointing because, you know, they've been having this great feud all year long. You know, I think it's been one of the best feuds of the year, honestly, but I thought that was the blow off. And I was like, that's a really disappointing blow off for what had been one of the better feuds going on really in all of wrestling. But that's not the end of the feud because they're on the opposite sides of this tag. And now we're going to build to a title match. 
for Rockies. What is that title that he holds? I hate to put you on the spot. The um, it's the oh. whole the NWA World Historic Walter Weight is the one. So uh, he will. I always forget which weight class uh, his particular title is that he's feuding with Volador over. But yes, yeah, so they're going to build towards that, and they were on opposite sides of this ten man. So um, aside from Volador and Rocky going at it here. Did you have any other thoughts on this 10-man that opened up? It was Gabe Kidd, Kevin Knight, Kushida, Mike Bailey, Volador Jr. versus Chuck Taylor. Very random. Leo Rush, Rocky Romero, Clark Connors, and the DKC. Not really. It was your standard, decent, you know, little multi-man tag opener. Um, I know Chuck Taylor was replacing Ishii, who uh, went on to uh, wrestle a singles match later in the night. Uh, originally, he was supposed to be in this match, but um, no, this was a, just a you know a decent little tag. Everybody get to get their stuff in. Um, I thought the spot of the match was uh, Kevin Knight and Kushida doing like a standing doomsday dropkick to the DKC off the apron onto a, like a bunch of guys on the outside. Because um, obviously, you know, Jet Setters, they're like, they're going to be the next challengers for uh, Catch 2-2. Just giving a little shine in the match there. And uh, Kevin Knight is a pretty amazing dropkick. <laughs> but um, no, beyond that, it was just one of those standard, uh, you know, little openers, I guess. So who was Despy's first opponent? Uh, I don't think he you had remember? one. I think, I don't think he had one. I think they announced Despy just having the match with Ishii and they moved Ishii up. I think I, I can't remember in particular. So I think yeah, I can't, I, I can't remember either, but cause I, you know, you mentioned that Ishii was in this match originally. And I was wondering, I was trying to think while you were talking, if somebody got hurt or something, but I couldn't remember. So I think you might be right. I think it just might be a matter of, it wasn't necessarily an injury move, but just, they had to shuffle some pieces around, um, mm-hmm. you know, just, just when they put the card together or whatever. So, yeah. And of course, you know, they did uh, the post-match, I guess, was more notable than the match itself because, you know, you had the Clark Connors DKC stuff here, which mm-hmm. kind of set up what was going to happen next after David Finley defeated AR Fox. So uh, what'd you think of, let's combine the two angles, the the angle after the 10-man tag and then, the uh, new Bullet Club member. What'd you think of all that? Yeah, when he when he turned heel on DKC and attacked him, I could kind of guess. Okay, you know Finley had been teasing a new member at the DC show, you know, appearing in some way. I figured, okay, that's kind of obvious, and you know, it, it could have been a swerve. They could have had someone else, but uh, they went with the obvious pick of having uh, Connors uh, be the new Bullet Club member, which I think is, is good. I think it's a good move for him because um, I mean he's a good wrestler. Don't get me wrong; he's good as a babyface, but I think. You know, he wasn't really going anywhere right now, uh, really. He was mainly just, you know, on the U.S. shows. And when they brought him over to Japan, he was basically just Taguchi's tag partner uh, for Super Junior Tag League. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a decent role for a guy on the come up. But if you want to really, you know, get the gas going and, and start putting the pedal to the metal, then I think it's a much much better move to turn him heel and, and give him a new direction with uh, the Bullet Club. I know, I know people groan, oh, a new Bullet Club member. I, I know, me too, believe me. But I do think this is, is, a, is a good move for him. Listen, I, I think Bullet Club somehow, some way, feel actually feels fresh in all the places that it exists currently. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm someone who's into David Finley and his turn. Me too. And okay, you are too. I was that that was going to be my next question yeah. because Rich is still kind of on the fence with Finley, and I can tell that he's negative on it but doesn't want to fully commit to the take yet. But I I've been doing audio with him for over 10 years. I could tell he doesn't like it. 
but he's holding off on totally he's he's giving it every last chance before he completely buries it but i think finley is coming across great i think it's very obvious that he has new enthusiasm now that he's been given a key role and i think he's been doing a good job with it i thought he had a but here's the thing with finley again it was the same on this night too with ar fox he has good matches that never hit the next gear now look I get this is the second match of the night and they were given 10 minutes. I understand that. You know, they're not going to go out there and have a four and a half star match. But even when he's in a position to have a longer bout and in a position to deliver, it, to me, he never just kicks it into that final gear. Uh, but, but as far as the persona and the look and him grabbing this by the throat, I think he's doing a great job. You want to talk about Finley for a second? Yeah, I've always thought Finley was a good wrestler. Um, uh, you know, he was one of his detractions, you know, is because he was for so long just a guy in the mid card, you know, whether it was as Young Lion or, you know, as Juice's tag partner for many years or whatever. And now that he's been, you know, boosted up into this prominent position, it can be hard for people to kind of shake that off of him or shake off the feeling of him just being, you know, quote unquote, Jay White light, you know? Uh, so that's going to be difficult for him. And, and yeah, as far as the match quality goes, I've been looking over some recent, you know, matches of his, and I went, um, you know, four stars in the Sonata New Japan Cup final. I went, uh, uh, I think, four and a quarter on the Ishii New Japan Cup match, and I thought the match he had with uh, with Osprey last year for the U.S. title was was amazing. But then again, that's Will Osprey. That's that's Ishii. You know, th- those are guys that you can put them into anyone, and they'll have a great match. So yes, I I don't think he's the type of guy that you can rely on to deliver that. That, that New Japan main event, like, great match caliber kind of thing. But, like I said, he is a good wrestler. He can have a good match. And I think, I, I think he had a good match with A.R. Fox here. Um, A.R. Fox got a lot of offense in, some close near falls. But Finley, obviously, is the guy that they're, they're, they're looking at and, and they're putting on the, the, the shine on, so he won. But what I like about Finley, too, is this. Finley is a heel. He's an asshole. He's aggressive. He's a jackass. But he pretty much wins clean. It's not like Jay White where there's, you know, gate of interference, there's oh, the low blow or the ref bomb. No, Finley, like, he'll like he'll grab a tight like every now and again for, for a near fall. But he's pretty much just one clean with the trash panda every single time out. So I, I do, I said, I said elsewhere, but I do like that about Finley a lot is that, yes, he's a heel in Bullet Club, but he's kind of doing his own thing where he's he's leaning more towards the aggressive side of it rather than the cheating heel side of it, which I like a lot. And, you know, the thing that the thing about Gato's booking is when he's establishing a new wrestler or a wrestler in a new role, he really likes to hammer home what they're going to be and what their role is going to be. So if Finley is winning all of these matches that he's winning clean now, that's sort of an indication that he's not going to be your typical cheating bullet club wrestler. So I think you make a good point there because, you know, you could think of numerous examples over the years when someone's being established in New Japan, either as a newcomer or in a new role, where right out of the gate when they're winning all of their matches early, we see what they're going to be. And we, you know, we see uh, how they're going to win their matches, what moves they're going to use to win their matches with. So they've, they, I hadn't even thought of that angle, but you're right. He has not been a cheating heel. He's just been an asshole. And I think that's, a nice little change from what we often see with Bullet Club. And the Connors thing, I agree with you. I think that's great for him. I think 
This is good for his career. It gives him a chance to do something a little different. You know, the, the young, these young lions have to wrestle clean. And then he, you know, and then his first gimmick with like, I guess this big game hunter, what was he? The white wild rhino. rhino. What was his official nickname? The wild rhino. The wild rhino. And he's, he's got like this hunting persona and, you know, he's just, uh, you know, that, that wasn't, that wasn't something that had, uh, incredible upside, uh, that gimmick, but, uh, you know, it was something to to get started in the company as a full-fledged roster member. And he got a couple tours under his belt and a couple tournaments. And I thought he carried himself well as a Bullet Club member uh, on, the, on the next night of this, of this little mini tour here, too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's without question, a, a positive move for Clark Connors. So uh, next up, we had Zach Sabre Jr. against Filthy Tom Lawler for the uh, TV title 15 minute time limit in what was supposed to be a title for young guys. And it's been nothing but old guys. Uh, this was uh, two very old guys, uh, very old guys. What are they? 38. How old are these guys? Zach Sabre jr. Is 35 and filthy Tom. Is he 40 yet? He is 39. So either way, this is not, you know, the 25 and under idea that we were sold on, but uh, I thought this was the first, what I would call, uh, very good match uh, out of these two shows here. I I enjoyed this a lot. This was one of my favorite matches of of the set of shows. I thought these guys worked well together, and I know Tom Lawler was in for a tag league. I think last year. Uh, I think it's time to get him back into Japan proper for some New Japan tours. Uh, what do you think of this match? Yeah, this is a great match. I went notebook on this. This is my first notebook match of the weekend. Um, one of the best matches of the night. And you know, when you hear like, you know, Zack Sabre Jr. versus Tom Lawler, you kind of think, okay, it's going to be, you know, two grappling guys. It's going to be technical grappling. It might get a little boring, but no, they mixed it up. They had the grappling, they had the technical stuff, but there were big strikes. There were, you know, flash pin exchanges and all that kind of stuff. And Lawler is bleeding from the mouth. And I think what helps a lot too is the 15 minute time limit. Because that can really help, you know, keep it from going too, too long. And it helps build up, you know, a sense of urgency. And the thing about, you know, Zach's matches with this TV title is that they've all pretty much gone close to the time limit. Uh, which, on the one hand, can ramp up the drama, sure. But if you do it for every single match, it kind of, you know, loses its luster and kind of becomes a trope. Um, but, but no, I, I thought this was a, a great match. I went, uh, I think, four stars on this. And uh, if there's a rematch down the line, maybe in a G1 or something like that, I'd be down for it. I'd love to see Lawler in a G1. He was in the G1 last year. He was in the G1 last year, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and then he came back for the tag. Did he come back for the the tag league, right? No, Um, no, no, no. no. I'm confusing. I don't think so. Yeah, you know what? I'm I'm confusing the tag matches on the G1 tour with the tag league because he worked a bunch of tag matches on that with uh, him and Isaacs. uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he he worked the G one last year, and I'd like to see him back. You know, he he's he he has a style that suits a lot of the guys on the roster. And you know, I went four and a quarter on this. I thought these guys uh, tore the house down, and it was you know arguably the match of the night. You know, in contention at least with the next one we're going to talk about. I thought, and then uh, and then the main event. So I had Ishii and Despi at four stars flat. Um, you know, what What can you say? It's Ishii. If you put him in a singles match with anybody with a pulse, he's going to find a way to make it dramatic and to make his spots work. And, you know, Despi's a guy who always works hard, willing to give up his body. 
And uh, they went out there and had pretty much the exact match that I thought they would. So um, I didn't like it quite as much as the Sabre Lawler match, but I still thought it was one of the better matches of the weekend. Yeah. I also went notebook on this. Uh, I think, I think four stars too for this one. Um, yeah, this was great. I mean, it's, it's Ishii and Despy. So yeah, you kind of expect it to be a certain level. And um, what was cool too, is I think commentator mentioned, mentioned this, but um, this is a rematch from the empty arena, new Japan cup matches that, that match that they had in 2020. So it was basically just like a do over in front of an actual crowd and uh, sure enough, you know, they killed it. Uh, you know, Despy trying to go after, you know, the strike exchange at first with Ishii, and that's not going to work because it's Ishii. So he goes after the leg instead to set up numero dos, and, you know, Ishii's trying to fight with this wounded leg. And um, they're doing these cool sequences like Despy hitting Pinche Loco, and he went for that second one, that, that you know, exclamation point with the second one, and you know, Ishii lands on his feet and does the sliding clothesline and, and all that stuff. And, um, and then the lariat that he just, he... Take, took Despy's head off with that lariat at the end into the brain buster afterwards. Uh, just so good. Yeah, great match. Um, one of the best of the night and one of the best of the weekend, I think, uh, in my opinion. All right, so we've got Sonata as the IWGP world champion for the first time in America in there with uh, Yoshinobu Kanemaru. Well, they before defeat- that, sorry, sorry to, uh, before that, we had the Juice, we had the Juice uh, Robinson, Fred Rosser attack. Uh, before that. Uh, you know what? So. If you didn't bring that up, I would have completely forgot about it. You know, that's if why there's I'm the producer, one thing that, man, I, I that's got right. you back. <laughs> if there, if there's one thing that happens on this show with me, with Rich, with me and Rich, we constantly forget to talk about angles on these shows. I, I, I don't know what it is. It, it may be because we're just reading down the match results, and typically when you're looking at match results on Cage Match or something. You know, typically angles aren't on there, so maybe it's out of sight, out of mind. But I can recall so many times where I have finished up one of these stupid podcasts and, you know, slap my hands together. I start eating my post-podcast meal, and I remember that we forgot to talk about some major angle where some major star did a turn or somebody debuted, and I'm constantly kicking myself. So thank you very much for bringing that up. Talk us through that Juice Robinson <laughs> angle. Okay, so a uh, little flashback to Battle in the Valley. Uh, Fred Rosser was wrestling Kent of the strong title. Juice Robinson sneak attacks him during the match with a roll of quarters in his hand. Left-handed guy with the quarters. Uh, Kenta wins the belt from him, and this is, you know, obviously the, you know, the revenge. Rosser wants revenge, and in the lead-up to the match, he had called out Juice's wife, Tony Storm, and said, you know, come on down to the show. I'll, I'll get a seat for you. If you put his name right in her seat, you can watch me kick your husband's ass. So Rosser comes out for this match, and Juice incensed. He's a he's a, a proud husband. He attacks Rosser from behind, just viciously, and hits him with the roll of quarters again. And he just goes uh, full on Will Smith, you know, with the "Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth" line, which was which got a pop out of me. So uh, yeah, uh, no contest, and uh, Juice is uh, you know kayfabe suspended from New Japan for the foreseeable future. And uh, Rosser is, uh, you know, beaten and bruised uh, going into the next night. Isn't this one of these scenarios where the heel is right? Like, I mean, when you when you call out a man's wife like that, he's got a point, you know? <laughs> I mean, the guy sticks a chair there with his wife's name on it and, and says he's going to, you know, beat the shit out of her husband right in front of her. D- doesn't Juice have a legitimate gripe here? 
You know, I I, I don't I don't know if he's necessarily wrong for for beating the snot out of this guy. Um, yeah, but no, they never rang the bell, and you know he just beats the living shit out of him. Uh, gets the suspension, gives him the Will Smith line. Now it's funny because I think Will Smith was in the wrong, but like it's almost the same scenario, right? Like it's a similar scenario, except you know, Rosser is threatening to beat to beat up the guy in front of his wife. Chris Rock is telling a joke as a stand-up comedian. I think that's the key difference. But uh, and, and listen, we live in a society, and the rules are a little different than than a <laughs> wrestling ring. You just you can't be walking up to people on live TV and paint brushing them across the face. So I think that's the big difference for me. Uh, the rules are different, uh, you know, in pro wrestling. But I this I think this is one of those scenarios where the heel isn't necessarily wrong, right? So, uh, but this would this would play out over the course of the weekend and and affect stuff that happened on the next night. So uh, we will get back to uh, speaking about Fred Rosser in a minute. But uh, so, yeah, so this is what uh, I was bringing up before Sonata, who won his match mm-hmm. here, his first appearance as champ in the United States with Kanemaru. They beat Hiromu and Naito. Maybe a little bit of a surprise outcome for people who don't pay super close attention to how New Japan tends to book. But I kind of saw this one coming a mile away. Uh, with Kanemaru, but um, first though, before the match itself, your early takes on Sonata as the IWGP heavyweight champion. Well, you know, I wouldn't call him my favorite wrestler. I like him. He's not my, my, you know, one of my favorite guys and similar to you and similar to Rich, I don't see him as someone who can deliver a, you know, slam dunk great, you know, main event New Japan match like we're used to. Like you mentioned, like you said at the flagship, you know, um, a little while ago there, talking about the win. But but I I do think, you know, in this day and age where you have guys like Tanahashi getting older, guys like Naito getting older, you need to take a chance. You need to push new guys. And, you know, this whole Just Five Guys thing with Sonata, I think it's been working. You know, in fact, crowds are into it, fans are into it. And I am willing to give it, you know, a lot of chances to um to work and i think uh it won't be a super long reign and i think if you have him in there with Romus for a first defense it's off to a good start but yeah i i am willing to see where this goes um and uh, i think uh like the unit is just in and of itself i think it's pretty cool so yeah again i'm not a super fan of the guy but i i think you have to take a chance on these kind of things and you have to see what works and i think they're going to give him every chance to make it work were you surprised at all by the result no, uh, because uh, they've got Kanamaru challenging Hiromu on the one of the Road to Dontaku shows, uh, and you know you're not going to pin Naito, you're not going to pin Sonata, so it's not going to be Hiromu or Kanamaru, and who better to get a sneaky you know roll up win over that over a champion than Kanamaru? That's kind of what he does. He's the heel master. He's known to use these little roll ups here and there. In fact, I noticed when. The, the move he used to win over Hiromu here, that was the same cross-legged roll-up that he used against Ishimori in last year's Super Juniors, where he won the match in like two minutes or whatever. So yeah. he's, he's used that before, and I imagine you know they'll use it as, as a near fall in the, uh, in, in the upcoming title match. But no, uh, you know, getting the win over the champion like this is not necessarily shocking, given that they like to build it up this way sometimes. But it was tricky because 
that champion is also the challenger for yes you know so there was there wasn't an obvious finish in this match but when i thought it through i thought to myself i'm like they're probably going to leave the heavyweights out of it and i feel like that the finish that makes the most sense is kanamoru with a fall over Hiromu because th- there was no obvious optimal outcome here, but that one seemed to make the most sense to me. And the way that they did it, it was like, Oh, well, this just, you know, it makes too much sense. Um, so yeah, there was a lot going on here though. Cause Hiromu's facing Sonata for the title and Kanemaru's facing Hiromu for his title. And I, and I have to think that Naito is going to be the next challenger after Hiromu mm-hmm. because that just makes too much sense for the uh uh for for the story but as far as sonata goes i think Duntaku is on pace for a sellout i don't think it's sold out yet or it wasn't the last time i checked but it looks like it's going to sell out and the the th- you know th- that's really look the bottom line is this we're putting the belt on sonata if they sell tickets then it was a good decision if they struggle to sell tickets then it wasn't a good decision and people weren't ready for this that's that's really what it comes down to now, everybody talks about the great reactions this guy gets. And I swear to God, I'm getting a different audio feed on these shows. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't get good reactions because he always gets good reactions. But I see people talk about these amazing reactions he gets. I didn't feel like he got one in the match where he won the title. Not on his entrance. Not during the match. Not necessarily in the post-match. Or the, you know, they chanted Sonata and Sonata. Stuff like that, but I, I don't feel like he was especially over in that scenario when he won the title. I did not feel like he was especially over on these shows. Uh, they cared about him. He got good reactions. But then, you know, I bounce around in my usual haunts online, and I see people say, oh, these American crowds, they loved Sonata. I, am I getting different audio feeds? I, I don't feel like he's getting the level of response that your typical top line new Japan stars get. He certainly wasn't getting the kind of responses that Naito and Okada were getting on these shows. And not that I expect him to, because those guys have been established superstar level wrestlers for a decade. Okay. And this is a guy who just won the title 10 minutes ago, but I don't know. I am not feeling this massive overness of Sonata that people are claiming exists, but the ticket sales are going to tell the story there, I suppose. So it looks like Don Taku's going to do pretty well. And then we go from there. I mean, it's like I said last week or whatever week it was, I'm open-minded to this to see where it goes. You constantly have to make new stars. You make new stars or you die. I mean, that's just how it goes. That's pro wrestling. So uh, it was, it, it felt like it was his time. They pulled the trigger. I do think it's notable, and maybe you can blame this on the fact that these cards came together or were put together before he won the title. You look at his card positioning here, and you know it kind of tells the tale of where the company thought he belonged in terms of the other New Japan stars. Uh, But again, these cards were put together and booked out before he won the title. I I understand that. But he's working the middle of the show, and he's the champ. You know, so it's it's not like they're booking him over uh, some of the more established stars in the company yet. And as champion, usually, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't matter, and, and they do. But 
I think that might have, to be fair, more to do with when these cards were laid out than uh, than than how they view him in terms of uh, his star power. But um, look, this is going to be a talking point, you know, for the first, you know, for however long he really has this first reign. Really, this is going to be a talking point, you know, because when you elevate somebody new, the big question is, uh, did the elevation take? And with Sonata, we're going to find out. Um, but, you know, as I've been saying for a couple of weeks now, I'm not particularly excited about Sonata as New Japan champion, but uh, we'll see how it all works out. I thought that the Kenta-Eddie Edwards match for the strong title, I thought this over-delivered. Now, the disclaimer there is, I Kenta is arguably my favorite wrestler of all time. And while I concede that he's not the wrestler he used to be, he's older, he's broken down, I am probably more into grimy, brawler, storytelling Kenta than most people are. And that's exactly what this was. I I thought Kenta was pretty great here, adjusting for what Kenta is now. And I thought it was a really interesting, you know, two former NOAA GHC champions in the match. So maybe the fact that I was more into who these guys were and the history behind it, um, you know, because investment means a lot in terms of how much you're going to like a match or not. And I don't think people admit that enough. And I was invested in this and I thought this over delivered. I, I, you know, I didn't think this was a great match or anything, but I thought it was grimy. I thought it was dirty. I thought it was hard hitting and I, I enjoyed it. What did you think of this match? Yeah, I, I thought it got to, as it went along, it got better and better. But I thought the first half was a bit bit slow. Because, um, yeah, look, Kent is 42. He's had a litany of injuries. Eddie Edwards, again, no spring chicken himself. He's 39. You know, he has injuries in his, his career, too. And it's not it's not 2009 anymore. You know, it's 2023. It's, it's, we're a long way away from those those ROH and NOAA days. But, but I thought that there's always like a moment in a, a modern Kenta match where the switch is flipped and you can see the glimmer of the old Kenta or young Kenta technically, I guess, but, and he's showing the fire and he's doing like the big slaps of the face and he's doing the big drop kick in the corner and all this. And he's going hard and heavy. And then the ref bump happens, you know, and then here comes the low blow and the belt shot and that kind of stuff. And the kind of, kind of deflates it a little bit. So yeah, I, I guess I wasn't as into it as you did, but I also had expectations of what this is going to be. And it, it kind of, you know, resided in those expectations, I guess, given both guys' ages and where they are in their careers, I suppose. And then the main event, which is the match, I guess, where Tanahashi broke his rib. Um, it looked like he did it on a high fly flow. Did you pick up on that? Maybe I, that's the likely culprit because he went for it and uh, Davis, I think, got his knees up. So that is the likely, I think, reason for it. But um, but yeah, I don't think they've said specifically when it happened, but I think that might have been it. It seemed like that's when it happened, you know, um, watching the match back. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a three-way and Aussie Open win the New Japan Strong Openweight Tag team titles the forgotten titles of new japan i forget these titles exist <laughs> all the time um yeah I, like every time motor city machine guns defend these titles i'm like oh yeah these titles exist but uh 
they are the champions no more as Aussie Open now double champions as they win this three-way match and uh, win these New Japan Strong Tag Team titles. Contender for match of the night, contender for match of the weekend, I would say. Uh, really good, high-action three-way match with a bunch of great wrestlers. Yeah, a, a fun frantic main event. Um, you know, Tana and Okada didn't really do a whole lot. It was mostly Aussie Open and the Guns, but um, but they wanted Okada and Tanahashi to be there for the star power and have that kind of you know third team dynamic, I suppose. And it was fun to see you know Okada mix it up with Saban again and Shelley again at you know all those years after all these years. And uh, I think uh, I think Okada did the uh, the Aussie Open, you know, Okada, 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 oi, 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 kind of taunt, which is which is pretty fun, but. But yeah, this is a really good match, a really really good main event, and um, it was uh, it's funny. Uh, Kyle Fletcher, him and these moonsaults to the outside, he just has the worst luck lately because he went for one here and he landed just dick and balls first on the guardrail. He he landed on that thing just right there in the uh, right there in the region, and somehow he kept going. You know, God love him. I would I would have been done for, but. Um, and they actually played into it the next night by having the fans and Davis like try to stop them from hitting the move, which is pretty funny. Um, but, yeah. But but yeah, this was yeah this is a good main event, and uh, Aussie Open are now the uh, the double champs. They are now uh, two sets of tag champions in the same company. Go figure. So yeah. And they closed out both shows. Yes. Yeah. On. Uh, yeah, Fletcher cut a promo on shows with all kinds of with on shows with all kinds of top line star power. Aussie Open close out both shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, on the first, on the this, this show, uh, Fletcher said that Aussie Open are the best tag team in the world, and of course the card starts chanting FTR, and Fletcher says, that's some bullshit right there, so they're laying the breadcrumbs for the rematch. Coming oh, yeah. in door maybe, maybe Wembley, who knows, but it, it's coming, that, that's for sure. So. Well, there's a million chances to do it. Mm-hmm. You have all these huge shows coming up. And we know it's coming. And uh, they seem to be the belt collectors this year. So, um, yeah, can't wait for that. Those are probably, you know, right now, based on based on output, the two best teams in the world. So, uh, and Aussie Open had another great match the next night. So, we'll, we'll move on to Philly. And this is the show where you did the uh, written review for the Voices of Wrestling site. So, um you're going to know more about this show by, by the time we're done here. I mean, you know, two reviews, watch the thing. Uh, you know, you're going to know more about the show than anybody in the world, but uh, this show got torn apart, just ravaged with, uh, you know, Tanahashi's injury, a uh, bunch of other changes on the card. So this didn't look anything like the card that we thought we were going to get, including the main event, which we were kind of just talking about. So why don't we just skip right to the main event and then, then do the rest in a minute. So it ended up being uh, Aussie Open versus the thrown together team of uh, Leo Rush and Tomohiro Ishii for these strong tag team titles that they had won less than 24 hours earlier. Now, um, this was originally supposed to be. Okay, so it was supposed to be Will Ospreay and Aussie Open versus who was the other side of this? It was uh, Tanahashi, Okada. Tanahashi, Ishii, and Leo. Okay, so Tanahashi, Ishii, and Leo. That's right. Yeah. So Will Ospreay gets hurt weeks ago. He gets replaced by TJP. TJP has travel problems, which a lot of people had this weekend for various shows all over the country. 
so TJP can't get in. They have to change it to a tag team match, a straight two versus two tag. So they pull, uh, well, I, I guess they don't pull anybody, right? So they just eliminate Tanahashi. They eliminate the third partner for the uh, the, the United Empire team. And we just have a straight two versus two tag. So uh, an absolute mess. And that wasn't the only change that we'd see on this card. And it was actually the second time in less than a couple of weeks that Will Ospreay and Leo Rush didn't get a chance to mix it up because um, I don't even know if this is public or not, but but Will Ospreay was going to wrestle Leo Rush on the Mark Hitchcock Memorial Super Show, but that got changed because obviously Will got hurt. And then Leo Rush pulled himself from that. He didn't even end up wrestling on that show. So, you know, and then Leo Rush pulled himself from the show when they, they, they changed it. Um, I'm trying to get all the changes straight, but it was, it was going to be Will Ospreay versus Leo Rush. Then, okay, this is what happened. Then Leo Rush pulled himself from the show. So then they moved Will Ospreay into a six, the six man tag with Aussie open, but then Will Ospreay got hurt and they had to pull Will Ospreay out of the six man tag with Aussie open. And then Aussie open ended up wrestling. Um, they team with cop on, on the uh, super show there. Right. That's right. And then what they did was uh, they brought in Cobb, who was wrestling on a different show somewhere else at, in the same time slot. But they took care of Cobb and and brought him in to replace Osprey. So that show is another show that got completely Frankenstein. But the, the point here is this was the second time in two weeks that Will Osprey was supposed to share a ring with Leo Rush and didn't. So at any rate, it ended up being Aussie Open versus Leo Rush and Tomohiro Ishii. And I thought this, again, may have been, I thought this was easily the best match on this show. And I thought it may have been the match of the weekend. I went four and a quarter plus with my very pretentious new rating system on this <laughs> one. Uh, the same rating I gave the three-way tag the night before. Um, but if I had to choose one over the other, uh, my disdain for three ways, I'd probably just give the edge to this one but uh what'd you think of the main event of this show in philly yeah the uh the loss of tanahashi and tjp it turned out to be a happy accident because this is my match of the night and match of the weekend i love this match four and a quarter on it um i mean aussie open yeah they've been having a, a great year i think they're they made a strong case no pun intended uh for tag team of the year uh leo rush a guy who's also a pretty great year too with uh the junior tag team match at wrestle kingdom the Hiromu match at New Japan Cup Finals, the match against Kushida at the Multiverse United show, and uh, and Ishii is Ishii. You know, we just talked about his match with Despi being great. So you put these four guys together, and you're bound to get something pretty damn good. And this was pretty pretty damn good. Um, it was fun to see, like you know, the dynamic, a similar dynamic of the big, thick bruiser guy and the smaller, faster partner. The funny thing is, though, is that both. Kyle Fletcher and Mark Davis are still bigger than like Ishii and, and Leah Rush. So, you know, relatively speaking, you know, bigger and smaller guys. But um, but still, this was great. You know, it was I think, 20 minutes or so. Just just all action after a certain point and uh, a lot of fun uh, combos. And uh, Rush and, and Ishii, they had a couple combos too. There was one where uh, Leo hit uh, a Rana on Fletcher which sent him propelled into an Ishii headbutt, 
which I th- I'd never seen before done in a wrestling match before. And then uh, Leo leapt into Ishii's arms like a lover, and then Ishii like, just splashed him down onto, uh, onto Fletcher, which is, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a really great go, go, go style main event. So um, yeah, two thumbs up. So I was thinking about this. Aussie Open, you know, we're now, it's almost May. So I, I don't think this is too early to talk about. They're tag team of the year so far, right? I mean, they have to be the clubhouse leader. Am I forgetting someone? I don't think I am. Um, I mean, if you want to include, I think Bishamon have had a lot of great matches this year. Um, Bucks, not really. They've been kind of out. FTR had a long spell where they were out. I'm trying to think of any other obvious ones. Um, catch 2-2, two, two, maybe? I, uh, yeah, I, I think as far as... It's got to be Aussie Open right now. Major, yeah, as far as Major League promotions, yeah, Aussie Open, I think, is the front runner for sure, at least. Because for a good chunk of the year, you know, the guns were the AEW champs and they aren't really, that's a different kind of tag team, right? They're, yeah, they're out yeah, there. They're, getting, they're, they're, they're out there getting yeah, heat. That, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. They're out there getting heat. And, um, you know, WWE, I, I guess you could make a case for either the Usos or Owens and Zane, but I don't think they have as deep a resume, either of those teams right now that Aussie open does through five months or through four months heading into the fifth month. Um, the Noah tag team situation hasn't been anything special. Um, deal with those titles bouncing around same for all Japan. And actually there's a lot of cross between those two with the kind of interpromotional thing they have going. Um, you mentioned all the new Japan contenders. Uh, is there an obvious dragon gate team? I'm forgetting. I don't, I don't hmm. think so. Um, only, I don't know. Only one that come to mind are the, were the champs they were before. I think KZ and, and Big Boss, but uh, that's a question for Case Low and Mike Spears, obviously. So yeah, I think that they'd be more suited for that uh, that question. Yeah. So I mean, I, I don't think there's an obvious team that is having the kind of year that Aussie Open is having through the first third of the year. I mean, we're going to be a third of the way through at this point. So I know Big Boss and KZ had that really great match against Yuki Yoshioka and um, Kakuda in March. You know, I remember that was a great match. But again, I don't mm-hmm. know if any of these teams have the deep resume that Aussie Open has. You know, and, and Aussie Open, they're, they're wrestling everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere. They're flying all over the world, you know, back and forth from AEW, and they're working these new fan shows, and... um even the matches that aren't necessarily great matches like we saw out of them this weekend, you know, they're delivering every time out. So, and now, you know, they're, they're, they're from a kayfabe standpoint, they're double champions. So there's a lot going on with them. I think so far this is their year, you know, we've got two thirds of the year to go, but uh, you want to start talking, you know, early, you know, we're, we're past WrestleMania weekend, you know, so, you know, you want to start talking early, award season stuff i i think they've got to be the the leaders right now for tag team of the year so um let's shoot to the top we had a little opener here despy and volador jr versus delirious and kevin knight i don't remember the original card i'm sure that rocky originally was involved with volador in some form but instead with all the changes they reformed the havana pitbulls later on in the show so uh I don't know. I, I don't have much to say about this. It was a fun little opener. I'm sure you don't have a ton to say either, right? Uh, this was actually the original match. Oh, um, no, nothing Rocky changed with this? Sched- 
Nothing, not not this match. Nothing no. changed with this fire pro button ass match that they <laughs> opened the show with. Well, Kushida was busy that night at Impact, so they had to get someone to team with Kevin Knight, and the Lizard Man stepped up to the plate. So there you go. <laughs> the Lizard Man, who survived the brutal uh, War Games match in MLW a few weeks earlier, and somehow uh, made it back to the twenty three hundred arena to team with Kevin Knight. Did you see that awful War Games match uh, on MLW? I, the other I, night? I have not been watching uh, MLW, I'm afraid. You have hand-waved the MLW. I am right, a little listen. busy at the moment. I'm sorry. I can't blame you for hand-waving the MLW. That, listen. I, I did see, I did see, I did see Hammerstone versus Fatu. I will say, I, I did see that, and that was a great match, but beyond that, I, I am in the dark when it comes to MLW. So you're not locked in every Tuesday night, is what you're I, telling me. I'm you're afraid I'm, I'm not. I'm unlocked in for MLW. So, you're not yeah. coming home from work and rubbing your hands together and, and, and slap and play on the DVR to enjoy some uh mlw action that's something you're not doing i'm not putting the briefcase down not putting the hat on the coat rack and all that honey i'm home i'm gonna watch some mlw it's not happening i'm sorry it's just not happening a little ml dub no okay all right microman doesn't work up your dander at all so all right i understand look i get it but uh delirious makes the booking here so you're telling me this is the original match i believe you uh look I thought this was fine for the people involved, but I think that we can uh, we can move on to the pure rules match, a ROH pure rules match on this New Japan show with Alex Coglin versus Tracy Williams. I thought this was really good. Me too. I went four stars on this. I like this one a lot. Wow. Yeah. You really liked it. And I'm not alone. People liked it. I know people loved it too. This was great. Yeah. Um, good match. Well, you, you go ahead. You loved it. You talk about it. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I'm glad to see Tracy Williams get a nice little gig with like ROH New Japan. I think he's he's like a Tony Nese where he's not like a standout character, but he's just a solid pro who can give you a good performance and match every time out pretty much. But this to me was the Alex Coughlin show. I mean, he was over with this crowd, especially when he did his freakish strength, which he loves to do. And that was really the story of the match, you know, with... Williams pretty much having the advantage over Coughlin a lot on the mat until, you know, from time to time, Coughlin would, you know, use his strength and his power to get out of trouble. So he would, like, be in a guillotine choke and he would, like, power out of it into a power bomb. And he would, he did that, um, he does this, like, deadlift into a suplex from the seated position, which to me is, is, like, generally one of the most, like, amazing things I've seen in wrestling today. It's, it's very impressive. And, yeah, the crowd got into this match a lot. I got into, into it a lot too, and Coglin won. And you know, given that he recently challenged Shibata for the ROH Pure Title, he was the natural winner. So yeah, this until the main event, this is my favorite match of the night. Yeah, I I thought it was really good. I mean, I I agree. This was the uh, second best match on the show. I thought this kicked ass. So uh, next up was the Clark Connors Bullet Club Showcase match against the guy he turned on the night before, DKC David Finley in his corner. Not much to say here. They just, this was introducing Clark Connors to the audience as a Bullet Club member, and he beat one of the lowest ranked guys on the roster. Anything else to add? Uh, no, I, I thought Finley's promo before this was good. Um, you know, outside of a few what chants, which, I mean, that's, that's the state of wrestling nowadays, unfortunately. I think he got a good amount of heat, and I liked his message of the promo where he said, he wanted only killers and savages in Bullet Club, like Connors, no t-shirt models, I guess was the quote. And 
he was going to keep his spot as the group's leader by cutting out anyone disloyal like El Phantasmo before they had a chance to turn on him. Because if you remember the history of Bullet Club, what happens to the leader? They get turned on. You know, yep. Devitt got turned on. AJ got turned on. Omega got turned on. Jay White got turned on. So Finley's idea is, hey, I'm not going to be the schmuck in that situation. I'm going to, if I see, if I smell any hint of disloyalty, you're out. You're gone. And that happened to ELP. So um, yeah, this was to me more about introducing Connors, having the Finley promo and, and having Connors you know, just destroy the DKC with the four consecutive spears or whatever. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then Finley saying that he wants nothing but killers. And then the match starting with the DKC as a house of fire, you know, they get the crowd behind them because, you know, with the idea of, well, if he beats Connors, then, you know, Connors looks like a geek because Finley's putting this guy over as a handpicked killer. So, but then Connors, you know, makes the comeback and Mm -hmm. it's basically a showcase. So yeah, but that was a good promo by Finley. I I think Finley's doing a great job. I, I really do. So uh, six-man tag, Team Filthy versus TMDK. The particulars were Tom Lawler, Royce Isaacs, and Jarrell Nelson. Isaacs and Nelson worked the pre-show the night before against uh, Bad Dude Tito, Shane Haste, and Zack Sabre Jr. with uh, Team Filthy picking up the win here. So uh, I don't know. It was a six-man tag. Yeah, I thought this was really good. I liked it a lot, Um, especially with the crowd because they they were hot with this. I like, hey, listen, it's it's over-delivered for me. Um, almost went notebook actually, uh, if you can believe it, but listen to this yeah. guy, this guy's into it. He's into it. Hey, listen, listen, I, I, New Japan's back, baby. What do you want me to say? Uh, I'm not knocking but, you. I, I like yeah. that people are into it. Well, listen, when, I don't know if you noticed, but when, when TMDK's music hit, the pop that they got, especially Zack Sabre Jr., he is over. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was like the last, uh, last of the night so far at this point. And, you know, him and, you know, these guys and Team Filthy, it's, it's a great pairing because they're, they're not completely faces. They're not completely heels. There's like a, a wink and a smile with both of them. They're kind of two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. So I thought their chemistry together was was very was very fun. And yeah, guys like Bad Dude Tito as the hoss of the match. You know, wrecking dudes with with lariats and whatnot, and the big slams. And um, he's someone I want to see back in Japan too with Lawler, uh, Bad Dude Tito. Uh, I'd like to see him get back over. But uh, but yeah, this was this was a lot of fun and. Uh, Lawler got the win with the uh, NKOTB, the nasty knee on the brain, for uh, for Team Filthy. So I think everyone everyone worked hard here, and it, it over-delivered, like I said. So here's Sonata working in the middle again with Kanemaru. And uh, this is what I brought up before, the Havana Pitbulls back together, Homicide and Rocky Romero, and obviously just five guys. Go over again here on this night. Uh, I've never really been a Homicide guy, but it's Philly. It's the 2300 arena. It's somewhere where homicide has wrestled a billion times. He's always over in the place. So uh, this was a nice little uh, nod to the fans here. Yeah. He similar to Zach, he got a big reaction on this show. Yeah. Uh, he had a standoff with Sonata at the beginning where the crowd is just, just going nuts. It's, it's pretty amazing. So um, yeah. yeah, this is the match that got, that did get changed actually. So homicide was the fill in for uh, Fred Rosser who got moved up to the Archer match because of the juice suspension. So right, right. that's why they're teaming together. And actually, I, did, I looked up some research here. This is the first time that Rocky and Homicide have teamed together in a two-versus-two match since Joe versus Punk 2, October 16th, 2004. That's my how long God. ago it was. So My God, that's almost 20 years ago. That's, 
I know they've had six mans with with Reyes and the Rottweilers. They've been op- opposite sides. They've been in you know multi mans and battle royals, I guess. But this is their first two versus two tag match since two thousand and four. It's crazy. Wow, that's almost hard to believe. That's 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 almost twenty years ago. But I guess you looked it up. So um, according to Cage Match, so there you go. Yeah. I mean, I'm calling them the Rottweilers, but I guess, yeah, technically it's the Havana Pitbulls, right? But I guess it's kind of... Well, the, the Pitbulls the pit were R- Ray, Romero, Romero and Reyes. Reyes. Right. And the Rottweilers was the overall stable with Homicide and Loki and Smokes and the Pitbulls. Right, so, right. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, just five guys to pick up the win there. AEW International title, Orange Cassidy versus Gabe Kidd. I thought this was a good match. Um, yeah. You know, it's you've got... An ROH pure rules match. You've got an AEW international title match. So uh, these these uh, promotional partners, uh, you know, doing some fun things on these shows, which is always good for the fans. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed that. I, I like this. So talk us through this one. This is another change up here. Originally, it was supposed to be uh, Gabe Kidd versus Eddie Kingston in a rematch from last year. I think January 2022. They had a great match on Strong last year, but yeah, they did. That was uh, a Eddie, really great match that 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 a lot of people didn't bother watching, but that, that was, was awesome. A, yeah. yeah, people should go back and watch that one. That was a really great match. Yeah, so I was looking forward to that, but uh, Eddie's injured, so can't do it. And so we got Orange Cassidy instead, which is a pretty good make good because you know Orange is a star, people love him. Uh, there was a kid on the show who dressed up like him, you know, because it's one of every show pretty much. But but yeah, and he's reliable too. I think I think looking at you know my matches of the year, Orange hasn't peaked super high. But he's always been reliable as a guy you can have on a show to give you a good match and get the crowd invested in a lot of things. And he's he's wrestled almost every week on, on AEW too, so you know he, he's had a lot of good, good matches on the show. So he's having a really good. I year. think he's been very cons- he's been very consistent. He's been a very good champion as well, and uh, he's had a good match with Gabe Kid here. Um, you know, similar I thought in terms of vibes, similar in vibes to the match he had with Osprey last year. Wasn't as great as that match, obviously, but I thought Gabe Kidd played a very similar role as you know the aggressive British you know jock dude bro or, or dude bruv as as Osprey would say, who who bullies the smaller Cassidy, and he, he did that. He you know he tossed him around and, and bullied him around. He called out Shibata at one point, and you know Cassidy would you know use his speed, use his quickness to you know uh, win the match. And what was cool about this too is um, you know Cassidy has been selling the injured hand. The past couple of weeks in the matches against you know Drillistico and Buddy Matthews and AEW, and he did that here. He hit, he hit the orange punch on on Gabe Kid. Kid no sold it. Hit the rebound lariat for a close two count, and then Kid went for a Kimura. And much like the match against Buddy Matthews, Orange had to bust out the mouse trap and get the win that way uh, with the with the roll up with the flash cradle win there. So um, yeah, uh, another really good match on the show and. Um, Another uh, good Orange Cassidy match, and uh, yeah. So Lij beats the Bullet Club. It was Hiromu and Naito who lost the night before, as we already discussed, and it was the Bullet Club combination of Kenta and Chase Owens on this night. So uh, it was the Lij side picking up the win in this one. Yeah, uh, you know, stick heavy at the beginning, as you would expect. Um, but um, but I thought it was it was interesting that Naito actually 
hit the Destino on, on the show to win, which I guess must have been in a good mood that day. But, um, but uh, yeah, again, uh, similar to the match on, on the previous show with, with just five guys, very much kind of a road to style match. Nothing, nothing special really. Um, but again, you know, the crowd was super hot for Naito and Hiromu. So, uh, um, you know, they were happy with it, I guess. <laughs> so at this point, they announced this all-star junior festival, which they did one of these in Japan earlier this year, which I wasn't really crazy about that show. What did you think of that show quickly? The one in Japan? I, I, th- I thought it was a decent, I thought it was a fun little show. I wasn't expecting anything with the card for it to just be blow away, but I, I thought it was, you know, one of those like kind of feel good-ish events where a bunch of guys come together and the crowd, you know, liked it a lot too. Um, so yeah, it wasn't like a, a show with a year container or anything like that, but I thought it was just a fun show to put on and, and watch us for some wrestling. So we're getting one here and we're getting it in the ECW arena. And this crowd went fucking ape shit for this announcement. <laughs> this may have been the biggest pop of the night. No, no exaggeration. I mean, these people, I couldn't believe how hard they popped for the announcement of this all-star junior deal, which, you know, it's probably going to be similar to the one in Japan, except, you know, instead of having every grimy Japanese indie involved, you're going to have New Japan, AEW, ROH, and, you know, probably some other you know, impact I'm sure is going to be involved in some form or fashion. And then maybe some guys off of the Indies, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a good idea. And, you know, based on the response that they got, look, there were a thousand people at the show and based off the way the fans responded, it seems like a lot of them are going to be interested in buying tickets for this thing. I heard the tickets are very expensive, so they're probably going to do a big gate, which which again, I, I heard that this show did the biggest New Japan gate in the history of this building. And I know they've run it a few times before. Hmm. So that surprised me with just under a thousand fans. They had 2,200 fans in DC the night before, which I know that didn't fill up that building, but to draw 2,200 fans, you know, with the super weak television that New Japan has in America right now, I mean, 2,200 fans, look, I don't want to go too crazy. But that's like a really bad, like when AEW does a rampage, you know what I mean? Like when AEW <laughs> does a rampage and it's a bad number, like that's the same neighborhood that 2,200 fans is. That's really pretty good for New Japan, you know, for, for a show like this. And then they come back in Philly and do from what I understand was the biggest gate that they've ever done in Philly. And then they announced this show and the place just goes fucking bananas. So you figure that show is going to do well. It has super expensive tickets. So I don't know. Fuck it. It seemed like people were really excited about it. So Rocky comes out and, uh, and, and makes the announcement and everyone's all fired up and uh, good for them. I think the date is what? August 16th. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, the tw- I mean, 21st. August 21st. Is that a Saturday or a Friday? Let me see. Uh, figure that out. That is a August 21st is a, is a Monday. That doesn't make any sense. Hold on a second. Uh, maybe I have the date wrong. Let me just maybe we've check. got the date wrong. It is August nineteenth. It is a Saturday. Ah, okay. That's right. why. So, okay. um, that would have been really weird running on a Monday. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So uh, Monday, August nineteenth will be this Junior Festival. So um, we will be getting the Super Junior cards soon too. Um, when are, they are announcing the Super Junior cards on that is the Hiroshima show on the twenty eighth, I believe. Twenty seventh, um, yeah, in Hiroshima. Yeah, um, this is a really weird tour, this Dantaku tour, because there's no Korokin shows. That's 
really bizarre. But uh, yeah, the the Hiroshima show on the 27th, we're getting the Super Junior lineups. And the Super Junior tour runs in May through May. It wraps up around Dominion, I guess, would be the title match. So until May 28th. And then a couple, uh, you know, two or three months later, we get that junior show in in Philly. But yeah, the crowd went absolutely bananas for this announcement. And then we had uh, the IWGP tournament match, Lance Archer and Fred Rosser, a little show to show booking. Rosser comes out all banged up from the beating that Juice gave him the night before. And then uh, Lance Archer does a little mic work, turns it into uh whatever they call what did they did they call it no dq or false count anywhere or philly street fight uh, philadelphia forever. street fight philadelphia so, street fight so he changes it archer challenges roster to a philadelphia street fight and the valiant baby face despite being all bandaged up from the night before of course accepts those those uh the new stipulation and then they brawl all over the building ecw style and uh, Lance Archer beating him on his bandages with kendo sticks and everything else. And then uh, Archer eventually uh, defeats Rosser, the very game Fred Rosser wrestling hurt to uh, to advance in this little mini tournament to determine the number one contender for the U.S. title. Yeah, I thought it was it was OK. It was a typical kind of plunder walk and brawl sort of thing. Um, it's funny. They at, at one point they brawled where you couldn't see him at all in the hard cam. And I think a few people started chanting, we can't see you, which, you know, was kind of funny. But, um, yeah, it was just, you know, a few kendo sticks, a few chairs. Uh, I did laugh at Archer just randomly hitting the ring attendants with the, with the kendo stick as he walked around. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, uh, towards the end, you know, our, um, Rosser had Archer in the, uh, the step of her toehold chicken wing. And then who runs in but the suspended Juice Robinson Hits him with the uh, the old left-handed guy with the quarters once again as uh, security chases him away at the building. And then uh, Archer picks Rosser up with the uh, – hits a huge lariat and, and wins to uh, to advance to the finals at uh, Dominion in Osaka in uh, in June there. So At the um, end of the Super Junior Tour, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, right after that. Yeah, so uh, – and that was the Philly show because we already did the main event. And yep. now they're back and they just had a show. We're recording this on Thursday night. They just had a show on Thursday morning to open up the Don Taku tour. Uh, notable shows on the 22nd is the Hiroki Goto 20th anniversary show, I believe in his hometown. And then on the 27th, the Hiroshima show, the, the big match is there. In addition to announcing the field for the Super Juniors, that's where they're doing Naito versus Doki, uh, the junior tag match with Catch-22 versus the Jet Setters, Kevin Knight and Kushida, and the junior title match with uh, Hiromu and Kanemaru. So those are the key matches there. There's also Shingo and Bushi versus Sonata and Taichi, if you want to throw that one in the mix as a notable match. So Hiroshima's really the first big show of the tour, and then two nights later in... Kagashima, they've got the uh, Satsuma no Kuni show, which has the uh, Shingo versus Taichi King of Pro Wrestling match. Those guys always have good matches together with, yeah. uh, with this title. So that's not something that I would just automatically skip. Shingo works his ass off with this title. And uh, the semi-main on that is Aussie Open in their first IWGP defense against... The, the old school OG original TMDK Japanese pairing anyway of uh, Shane Haste 
and Mad Mikey Nichols. So a uh, bunch of Australians mixing it up in the semi-main event. And that is probably going to be a sneaky good match because Aussie Open always delivers. And I'm sure TMDK getting back together uh, want to make an impression, you know, on their on their new bosses and 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 for their new stable and and show out in that one. So I think that has a chance to be really good. And then, you know, a couple nights later, after a couple more tour stops, it's Don Taku on May 3rd, which I'm sure we, uh, Rich and I, I guess that would be on next week's show. Yeah, so next week's show we will preview that because May 3rd very awkwardly falls on a Wednesday. So we'll preview that next Thursday and then have to, I guess, scramble to watch it before the Thursday after that to make sure we get the review going for it on the following flagship on the, uh, on, on May 4th. So that's, what's going on with the tour. Um, you know, and, and again, weird because there's no Corkins on this tour, which is is a bit strange um is something going on are they are they doing another remodel in Corkin or something because uh they, they new japan doesn't go back to Corkin until may 12th it's very odd that there's just no cork and show on an entire tour i have no idea yeah um i i assume other companies are running you know at some point over the next couple of weeks so yeah uh yeah i got, I got no clue yeah very strange i i, I don't know I'm not going to sit here and tell you I pay super close attention, but I, I I don't remember the last time I noticed that there wasn't a Cork and Hall show on a full-on tour like this. That that I can say uh, pretty confidently. Uh, anything stand out at you? Obviously, the Dantaku show, we'll leave that out of it. But on the tour itself, with some of these shows coming up, what are you looking forward to the most? Uh, pretty much all the big matches that you mentioned. Um, I think Naito Doki is kind of be a bit of a sleeper match. I think Doki has uh, come a long way since we first saw him a few years ago. I think he's he's gonna be very motivated to show out against Naito. Um, Shingo Taichi again. They have they have, always have great matches. Um, I think Karomu and Kanemaru will be great, and that be that. There's a wrinkle there too because uh, last year in Super Juniors, Kanemaru beat Hiromu with a figure four after uh, you know bashing his, his knee in. Um, in pretty quick succession there. So a little history there too. So um, yeah, I, it's not like a, a crazy blow away tour, but um, the, the, the key matches that they've got cooking up, I think are going to be pretty good. Who was on the latest music of the mat? The latest music of the mat. It was a music memories episode where I have on a guest to talk about three memories from the wrestling fandom that are strongly linked to music in some way. And uh, the guest this week was uh, Mr. Rob Viper on the show. Uh, so we talked, of course, a little bit about Lucha, a little bit about ECW, a little bit about uh, late uh, 2001 WWF. Uh, and it was uh, his first time on. So it was a lot of fun chatting with Rob. And uh, it was a good episode, uh, episode 159 of the show. So we're, uh, we're creeping up there in terms of the numbers of uh, episodes, which is, is pretty crazy. So, uh, yeah, you can get that on... You know, Apple and Spotify and Google Podcasts and all the usual, uh, all the usual haunts. We've come full circle because Rob Viper, the Booker Man of the Mark Hitchcock Memorial Super Show, which we indeed, uh, which we, indeed, which we just, which we just talked about. So uh, that's a big time New Japan segment we just did hey. there. So you know, I want to thank the producer Andrew Rich <laughs> for stepping in and helping us out with that New Japan segment, and uh, we will be right back. 
to talk about the latest with the All Japan Carnival. We'll do a little bit of pro wrestling, Noah. And uh, also, we might even touch on a little bit of the old ML dub, which Andrew Rich definitely is not going to stick around to do with me. We'll be right back. All right. So before we get into the Champion Carnival and the uh, Pro Wrestling Noah show in Sendai with the Jake Lee versus Katsuhiko Nakajima GHC title match, I wanted to quickly touch on MLW because... They have had a recent run of TV, which I assume, much like Andrew Rich, most of you listening to this, are not torturing yourselves and locking in to uh, reels on Tuesday nights to stay dialed in to MLW action every week. I'm sure most of you who even sampled the show in the beginning have long since hand-waved it, as uh, it has not been a good run of TV uh, massive production issues, continuity errors, wrestlers getting canceled before their matches air, and then massive, uh, you know, forcing massive re-edits of what's set to air, announcing certain matches that are going to air, and then completely different matches end up airing, and it's just been a complete mess. This has not been MLW taking advantage of the biggest television exposure that they've really ever had by pumping out the best product that they've ever produced. That has definitely not been the case. And the last couple of weeks, in fact, it has really cratered and really gotten stupid and really gotten ugly. You go back to two weeks ago to episode 10 of the TV and a couple days or about a week or a few days before this aired, okay? This was the dumpster match with... Real One, which of course is Enzo, Microman, Mance Warner, and Matthew Justice. The four-way dumpster match. And I guess the winner of this was earning a shot against Hammerstone. Or they had already booked Real One against Hammerstone on the next set of tapings. Or or, or whatever whatever the case was. It's, it's very confusing because they don't really lay this stuff out very well. On the TV show. But uh, with Real One getting fired from the company a few weeks ago. As Rich and I talked about on the show. What they decided to do. Since by many live reports. Real One won this dumpster match. Live. What they decided to do when he got fired. To get around this. Was to edit the match in such a way. To where Real One was no longer the winner. Of this dumpster match. The problem is. The way they chose to edit it. Made it very clear to anyone who was paying attention. That. They were bullshitting the audience. So let me set this up. So. Real one is laid out on top of a dumpster. Okay. Matthew Justice climbs to the top of a ladder inside the ring. And sets up to do. Some kind of dive on top of real one who is on top of the dumpster. Okay. They cut to a camera angle to some hard cam that's behind all of the fans in the ECW arena, the 2300, uh, 2300 arena, whatever it's called now. The fans who were all standing up to watch this, you know, spectacular spot that's about to happen as justice is about to, you know, come down 15 feet or whatever off the ladder 
threw Enzo on the dumpster. They're all standing. And you can barely see, but you can still make out Enzo laying on top of this dumpster, waiting for the spot. So Matthew Justice jumps off the top of the ladder with, with an elbow drop. Enzo clearly rolls out of the way. Even with all of the fans standing and this intentionally deceptive camera angle, you can see Enzo roll off of the dumpster. You can see it. Plain as day. Justice goes crashing through the dumpster. They cut away. As soon as Justice makes contact, they cut away. And they have the, the commentators. Joe Dombrowski is the uh, play-by-play man here. And it's, uh, I believe it was Matt Stryker in the booth with him. And maybe MSL. MSL is sometimes in the booth with them. Sometimes he isn't. That's uh, Mr. Saint Laurent. Okay. Um, so they had Dombrowski either do commentary in post-production or redo the commentary, whatever the case. And he just screams, Matthew Justice wins! And they cut away. When if you were paying attention to the show, you saw Matthew Justice completely miss on the elbow drop and go crashing through the dumpster himself. As Enzo rolled out of the way. So, instead of just showing the match as it was, with it, with Enzo winning the match. And then explaining his absence in another way. Either shooting an angle. Having the commentary just make something up. Uh, have Court Bauer, who is now an on-screen character on the show, come out and do an announcement. Do a crawler on the bottom of the screen. Whatever the case may be. It would have been very easy... To just show Enzo winning this match. And then just write him off the show in another way. Rather than attempting to change the result of the match. Which first of all. The results were already out. Because the match was taped over two months earlier. And everybody knew that Enzo won. And number two. It was edited so poorly. That we saw Justice missed Enzo. With the elbow drop. We all saw it. So if you're so concerned with the idea that you had already announced Enzo for this future singles match with uh, with Hammerstone, I mean, you, you could have just ignored that and just not done the match and just forgotten about it and just booked Hammerstone over somebody else. Or you, you could have just, uh, you know, made up, you could have shot your own angle, made something up. You could have said, oh, you know what, Enzo, he disappeared. He was scared to face this man. We don't know where he is. He just, you know, he's a heel. So just make up some heel excuse and then you never talk about him again. He's out of the company, he's gone. Or you just never mention it. Just never mention it. Just show the match as is. Go about your business. Never mention Enzo again. And never mention the match that you already announced again. It's really not that big a deal. What they did here was far more amateurish and total amateur hour attempting to change the result of a match that had been taped two months earlier. I mean, they would have been better off just not airing the match if that was the case. That, that's another option. There were a bevy of options. There's like a dozen different options they could have done, all of which were better options than what they chose to do. I mean, this wouldn't have, this, this wouldn't have been the first, second, or even third match during this run on reels. That they taped and then just decided for one reason or another just not to air. 
So why insist upon airing this match and changing, attempting to change the finish in a totally amateurish way? Just a, a total joke. And it just makes them look terrible. Anyway, so that was episode 10, which was titled Dumpster Diving. Okay, and then the next week they follow up with the War Chamber show. Now, the War Chamber is their version of the War Games. For about a year there, I think one year they had the rights to the War Games name, and they did it with the double cage, and this was back in the um, uh, 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 Koto Brazil days, uh, whatever Snoop Strike's name was when he wrestled for MLW. So this is probably uh, maybe even pre-pandemic you know, when, 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 when Shane Strickland was still there and people like that, I think that's the year they still had the rights to the war games name. They cut some deal with WWE. Uh, it's actually part of the current lawsuit that's happening right now, where all of this is cited, where they had some deal with WWE to use the war games name for like one more year or something like that. And then they can never use it again. So ever since then, they've been calling it war chamber. And the next episode of TV, which aired last week, was the or this week, rather, was the uh, War Chamber 2023, which was The Calling, which was Raven's group, which were uh, these mysterious calling card attacks, which were happening uh, actually before the real show ever started, when Fusion was still a thing on YouTube. Uh, these calling card attacks that, you know, were going back many months. Uh, it started in 2022, where people would mysteriously get beaten up in hallways or in corridors, and they'd have like a playing card. And uh, who's doing the calling card attacks? And then they started cutting into the broadcast like Contra used to do. And it was basically a total ripoff of what they did with Contra years ago. Uh, just with, uh, you know, a, a, a different group of guys who were eventually exposed to be Raven uh, leading Akira, Ricky Shane Page, and uh, somebody called Dr. Cornwallis, who, ironically enough, also wrestles as Dax the Axe. Not the same guy, obviously. And they were joined in this match, in this four versus four war chamber match, by Delirious, who I watch this show every week, and uh, I was not even aware he was part of this group. Okay, so that tells you how well they get their uh, stories across on the MLW Underground. So, um, so they're there, Raven's up on the stage overseeing his charges, take on Alex Hammerstone and the second gear crew, one called Manders, uh, Matthew Justice, and Mance Warner. In the War Chamber match, which is one ring with a cage, and of course, because it's uh, the the War Games rules, you have the use of the weapons, and it has to be submit or surrender and all those sorts of things. So uh, this falls comically falls apart as well. I guess not comically because the guy got hurt, but he has wrestled since, so... Uh, you know, we, we, we can uh, be lighthearted about it, I guess. But Alex Hammerstone gets hurt during the match. And they had to edit around that because he had to get carried out of the match. So it ended up being a four-on-three bout with the four calling guys against the three second-gear crew dudes. And the calling end up winning the match. But that fell apart because Hammerstone got hurt. And the match was terrible, and it was uh, irredeemably bad, and it, it took up the whole episode of the TV on top of that, and it was just just awful. Awful! And a guy gets hurt and carried out, and, and listen, by War Games rules, shouldn't they have just lost the moment he got hurt? Isn't that submitting or surrendering if a guy can't even continue in the match? Isn't that the whole point? 
to beat your opponent senseless until one of them can no longer continue? So anyway, that was also very bad. And that was episode 11. So uh, they've obviously been extended beyond their 10-episode run that was rumored. And I believe it's Aaron this week. They have, in fact, taped the Battle Riot show, Battle Riot 5. They taped that on the 8th, I believe. So the next set of TVs will be from the Battle Riot taping that took place back at the ECW Arena because the War Chamber show was in uh, New York City at the, uh, what's the name of that building? The Melrose Ballroom. So, um, bottom line here is be like Andrew Rich. Don't watch this shit. You aren't missing anything. It's awful. And look, there's been periods of MLW where I've enjoyed it. There's been times where Fusion has been an enjoyable show. But um, this is a mess. And I guess the news broke this week that Richard Holiday, who beat the cancer, by the way, is a free agent. So good for him. I'm sure he's uh, working his way back, trying to get himself into some shape and uh, so he can get back to the ring. So um, it, it's probably time for him to move on from MLW if he does, in fact, continue his career. He was, uh, he's been with MLW for a long time. You know, and he was aligned with, uh, with MJF and and uh Davy Boy Smith Jr uh back when ML uh, back when MJF was with MLW I forget what you know the name of their uh unit was or whatever but um you know now he's out there and I did see MJF tweeting some nice things about him so you know obviously those guys are pals uh from their days working together in the company so who knows maybe he can get him in dynasty is what it was it was uh and it wasn't Davy Boy Smith Jr it was Hammerstone I confused those two guys. So it was MJF, it was Richard Holiday, and it was it was Hammerstone. And they were actually a pretty entertaining group together. And then later on, uh, you know, Hammerstone went babyface and got the big push, and Gino Medina was part of the group. And then, uh, you know, MJF left the company, and then they did the big split with Richard Holiday and Gino Medina. Then they had a short-lived feud. So, uh, yeah, it was Dynasty, which... Uh, you know, was was the big heel faction at the time. It, Davey Boy Smith Jr., of course, around that time was aligned with Teddy Hart, and those two groups were feuding. So uh, that's why I got Hammerstone and Davey Boy Smith Jr. confused. But listen, that's far too much MLW talk for any one podcast. I just did 15 minutes on MLW. I can, I can feel everybody Xing out. I can feel you. Every one of you. You people. Xing out of this show after 15 minutes of MLW talk. I'm trying to milk this because it's at 14 minutes and 50 seconds. I want to go to full 15. And there we have it. 15 minutes of MLW talk. All right, so let's do this champion carnival. Do a little All Japan. Two more shows since the last time we spoke. Um, you know, the shows themselves, we'll get to that, but let's take a look at the standings. The big surprise is Block B, where Rai Saito, one of the Saito brothers, which, um, you know, the best way I can describe this is having, you know, a bad luck foul, one bad luck folly in each block, except when bad luck folly was still sort of fun and sort of charming, which is what these guys are. 
Um, but anyway, Block B, right side though, is actually in the lead. He's undefeated with six points, and nobody was expecting this. Okay, nobody. Now, he squashed Takeo Omori, and Takeo Omori is, you know, in his 50s, and he's an injury replacement for Nao and Nomura, so he's not going to score any points. We've been saying that from the start. So that wasn't a surprise when he beat Nomura, when he beat uh, Takeo Omori in, in 90 seconds or whatever. But he's picked up a couple of, uh, you know, and he beats Suji Ishikawa, who's no longer really a, a push commodity, the big dog. The original big dog, you know, he's not pushed anymore and he's on he's on the way down. But he beat Manabu Soya, which was the big surprise. And, and you know, when you look at that match, you know, Manabu Soya, of course, who is uh, in from Noah, but he's one half of the All Japan Tag Team Champions with Kano because they're doing this kind of interpromotional feud deal with uh, All Japan and Noah and, and Soya and Kano won, won the tag team titles. So... Keep an eye on that result with uh, Rai Saito defeating Manabu Soya because that probably sets up a tag team title shot for the Saitos. So that'll probably happen at some point at the end of this tour, after this tour, based on the fact that uh, one of the brothers knocked off, you know, one of these, uh, you know, Soya, who's an invader, number one, who's won half of the All Japan Tag Team Champions. So... Uh, that's the key result here. The other two wins that he's picked up were expected. I mean, I, I would have totally told you he was going to beat Omori and I wouldn't, and I may not have picked him over Suji Ishikawa, but I'm certainly not surprised that he beat him. But the, uh, the Soya win, that's a big one in terms of booking. Cause that means he's probably along with his brother going to get a tag title shot. Now his brother, Jun Saito, he's in last place in the A block. So it's totally opposite booking. Jun Saito hasn't won a match. He's 0-3. He lost to Kento Miyahara. He lost to T-Hawk. And he lost to Cyrus. So, you know, he wasn't going to beat Miyahara or T-Hawk. Especially now that T-Hawk is the uh, Gleet fucking T-Rex or whatever the fuck they call it champion. Okay? Cyrus was a winnable match, but uh, he lost that one. So the one brother's 0-3 and the other's 3-0. But anyway, back in the B block, Saito <laughs> leads it with six points. And then there's a log jam with four, Hokuto Omori, Suwama, Manabu Soya, and Yuma Anzai. Now, he finally picked up a couple of the wins. He got off to a poor start, but then on uh, night three, he beat Shitero Ashino in the semi-main event. And then on night four, he beat Takeo Omori in the opener. So... He has bounced back. He was 0-2 last week when we talked about this. And now he's 2-2 with three matches left in a uh, in a log jam for second place. So it's good to see him score some points. And then bringing up the back end, Shatero Ashino, who they're you know never going to get behind. We talked about that last week. He's got two points. Suji Ishikawa, who we talked about, you know his days of being pushed are done. He's got two points. It's Keo Omori is sitting in last place with zero, which is probably where he's going to finish. Um, I'm looking at Takeo Omori's matches. He's going to lose to Suwama. He's probably going to, he's going to lose to Manabu Soya. Um, he's going to lose to Ashino. And I guess Ishikawa would be the most winnable match, but he'll probably lose that one too. So, uh, he's probably going to finish in last place with the zero points. 
But uh, that's what's going on in the B block. In the A block, the surprise first place wrestler right now is Ryuki Honda, which a lot of people are, are kind of happy about because you know he's got that sleazeball charisma and has really been uh, a real comer in the last year or so uh, for all Japan. I need a, I need a drink. Hold on. Losing my voice here at 3.30 in the morning. But, uh, yeah, so Honda leads the block. He's 3-1. and one. His only loss is to Miyahara. But he's beaten Cyrus, Yoshitatsu, and Satoshi Kojima. The problem with Honda is he does have some big guns in front of him. He's got Aoyagi. He's got T-Hawk. And then his last match will be Jun Saito. So he very easily can go one and two. And it wouldn't even stun me if he lost all three. But he's in first place for now. And then there's a four-way tie with the four points. Cyrus, Yuma Aoyagi, Kento Miyahara, and T-Hawk. Yuma Aoyagi got off to the great start we talked about last week. He beat Miyahara and T-Hawk back-to-back in main events. And the big result in the A block this week was the upset loss to Cyrus. Cyrus knocked them off in a big upset. And we talked about it last week. Because he beat two of the other favorites right out of the gate, he was going to have to lose to some of these people that you didn't expect him to lose to in order to make the block competitive. And that's exactly how it played out. We know what we're talking about here on the flagship, okay? So he's already suffered one upset. And lost to Cyrus. Miyahara, since he lost to Aoyagi, has beaten uh, Honda. And he has also beaten Jun Saito. And then uh, T-Hawk, since he lost to Aoyagi, he's actually has four matches in. He has defeated um, Jun Saito and Satoshi Kojima. And he was also upset by Yoshitatsu. So uh, it's going to be hard. I don't see... Much of a path for T-Hawk. He's got the match versus Kento Miyahara coming up, which is going to be a great match. I can't wait for that one. And then he's got Cyrus and Honda as well. I, you know, I guess so, because he does have the match against Honda. So uh, we'll see. And then the back end, these guys pretty much are going to be non-entities. Satoshi Kojima's only got two points. He gets, he's gotten off to a one and two start. He lost to T-Hawk in a match that was pretty good. But as I'm about to talk about, these carnival matches, there just hasn't been much to them. And then uh, Yoshitatsu with two points, he was never going to be a factor. And Jun Saito has has been shut out. He's 0-3. And he's not going to be a factor. But here's the thing. He can pull an upset. Those Saitos can always pull an upset. That's the thing, you know. So, you know, you got to watch. He's got Aoyagi. He's got Honda. So they're both contenders. And those are both spots prime for a possible upset. Especially that Honda match. Keep an eye on that one. Okay, and then he's got matches against Yoshitatsu and Kojima where the result's not really going to matter because none of those guys are are really in the mix. So as far as the shows themselves, the show on the 15th, which was night three, uh, there really weren't any matches on either of these shows that I can strongly recommend to you guys to go out of your way to watch. The two best matches of the tournament are still the main events of night one and night two, which was Aoyagi versus Kento Miyahara and Aoyagi versus T-Hawk. Those are still the two best matches of the tournament. Uh, on this, on night three, T-Hawk Satoshi Kojima was okay. Yuma Anzai Satoru Oshino was a pretty good match. 
Uh, Suwama versus Manabu Soya was all right. But I, I, you know, Miyahara Honda was all right. Look, all these matches were okay. But, you know, I, I can't, you know, tell you that you got to go watch these matches. They did an all-Asia match, all-Asia tag title match with uh, Onita. Did another uh, Tornado Bunkhouse Megaton Current Blast Death Match is what this one was called with the exploding, uh, you know, corners with, with the countdown and all that. It was an exploding death match. And uh, Onita and Yoshitatsu successfully defended the all-age attack titles against Black Mensal Reigns, K.O. Omori. You know, and the explosions went off and everything. And, you know, they, they Onita's one half of the all-age attack champs. It's not really doing any harm, I guess. Um, the show drew uh, a little under 1,000 fans to Nagoya. That conference hall there in Nagoya, 935 fans. Is Onita adding to that? Is he helping them draw a couple, you know, 50, 100, 150 extra fans? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it is it is what it is. And it does uh, give All Japan a different feel this year than, than past years, I guess. They also did two more Junior Tag Battle of Glory matches on that show. All four teams in this tournament are tied at two points. So, um, if you're into the... 2023 All Japan Junior Tag Battle of Glory. You're in for an exciting finish as uh, all the teams are tied. And the matches have been fine. Uh, but again, I thought the matches on uh, last week's shows were, were better than the matches this week as well. So um, if you've fallen behind on Carnival, it's it's all about the main events on Night 1 and 2 and the Junior Battle of Glory matches from the early shows as well. I really think both of these shows are a full skip on night four, which was in uh, Shizuoka in front of about 500 fans. The main event was Suji Ishikawa and Suwama. God bless them. They worked hard. They went almost 20 minutes, but the big dog just don't have it in them anymore. You know, he pulled the upset. He beat his former tag team partner here, uh, preventing Suwama from going three and zero, and it was fine. Okay, but I can't tell you that you need to go sit through this 18-minute match. I can't do that to you. So, uh, you know, no junior tag battle of glory stuff on that show. Remember, there's only four teams, so they really have to spread those out. But, um, but yeah, and the other big result, like I said, was Rai Saito beating Manabu Soya, which likely sets up the tag team title match. So... Uh, that's your carnival catch-up. As far as the next shows, um, I actually don't know when they are because, you know, Cage Match doesn't have the future shows all all lined out. So, um, and I'm not looking at All Japan Pro Wrestling TV right now. Actually, let me pull that up and see if uh, I can tell you guys when the next shows are going to be here. Let me pull up the gimmick. Um, as far as the shows go, though, it's the same thing I told you. Look, the only matches that are getting any kind of time are the main events and the semi. The semis are getting between 10 and 12 minutes, and the main events are legitimate main events that are getting an appropriate amount of time. Everything else on these shows is short and sweet. You know, you're getting... Matches can end at any time. We've, we've seen matches go 90 seconds. And generally, they don't go any longer than seven or eight minutes tops for the undercard stuff. So, um, you know, look, this is not a, you know, 
This isn't 90s All Japan. You know, you're not getting Masawa Kobashi at the top here. So, um, let's see if I can figure out when uh, these next uh, shows are coming up. As I attempt very badly to navigate this site. Where are the... Where's the schedule? Is there a fucking schedule on here? Tournament schedule. Here we go. Let's see. Click the English. So I know what the hell's going on. Um, they don't come back till the 22nd and 23rd. So... There's a show on the 22nd, which is, uh, what is that? Friday, I guess. No, Saturday. Saturday and Sunday. And then there's a show on the 25th, which is Tuesday. So when we come back next week, we'll have three more shows to talk about. So this thing is very spaced out. They're not, you know, they're not working every night. Modern All Japan, they're they're really packing the shows onto the weekends. Because they're having trouble drawing. You know, they're... They don't, they're not running Tuesday nights, okay? They're running Saturday, Sundays, because that's what they need to do. Let's talk about this Noah Green Journey show in Sendai. First title defense for Jake Lee against Katsuhiko Nakajima. Very interesting. Well, first of all, before we talk about that, let's talk about the business end of this. I, I, I haven't seen an attendance figure, but it looked to me like nobody was there. I don't mean literally nobody, but the point here is it didn't look like they did a very good house, is what I'm saying. I saw a lot of empty seats, um, and I, you know, and not when the broadcast flicked on either. I'm talking uh, deep into the show, main event, you know, lights off, a little dark, but um, it's a 5,000 seat house, so um, they drew... All right, here I found a number. They drew twelve seventy seven. So, um, I think that's less than what New Japan does in that building. I'd have to look that up, but that's why it looked bad because you know this is a five thousand seat house, and they only had thirteen hundred people in it. So, um. Uh, so New Japan has run this building several times, but only during the COVID restrictions, and they've outdrawn that thir- that twelve seventy seven each time, which I believe there were no COVID restrictions on this show. I think we are officially past that everywhere, but I, you know, someone could correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, New Japan put twenty two ninety nine. In there for a New Japan Cup show in 2021, smack dab in the middle of COVID, and they've drawn um, around 2,000 fans a couple other times that they've run it, um, from what I could see. So, 1,277 fans here. Jake Lee versus Nakajima as Noah moves into the bigger building in town. Normally, when they run Sendai, I'm looking at this now. In 2022, you know, they ran the uh, the Sun Plaza, 633 fans for a show headlined by Nakajima versus Kitamiya for the GHC title. But remember, 
these are prob more than likely you know COVID restricted shows in 2021. They ran, uh, they drew 650 fans to the Sendai Sun Plaza for Marafuji versus Sugera in the main event. So they did about double what they normally do in that city for a GHC title match, but they ran the biggest building in town and there's no longer any COVID restrictions. So uh, from that standpoint, it's, it's hard to find a good comp for this show. I guess we'll have to see the next time they run it and yeah, they run this city. If they come back to this building, this ZBO arena Sendai and uh, what they run on top and what they do in comparison to this. But, um, you know, it certainly uh, didn't look good on the broadcast when you have this big building and, you know, there's only 1200 people there. So there were a lot of visible empty seats. Anyway, the main event was Jake Lee and Nakajima. And it was a very interesting layout to this match because, Nakajima just beat the living shit out of him. And he kept beating the living shit out of him. And then he hit the brain buster. And he gets the the two count. He gets the near fall. Which Jake Lee. And he's hardly the only one guilty of this. Totally tipped it off by staring at the referee doing the count. So you knew he was going to kick it. I hate when guys do that. Uh, There's a few wrestlers who don't do that. Okada's one of them. Uh, There's a few others. But... Totally gave it away uh, that he was going to kick out. And then from there, Jake Lee just kind of took over. He kind of just took over the match. And then he hit the, the the big boots on Nakajima that he's been beating people with. And Nakajima took an incredible bump. The finish looked great. I mean, the finish looked great. Nakajima did a flip bump off of this big boot and Lee pinned him. There was no, like, this wasn't like a back and forth, you know, classic Japanese world title match where, you know, guys are, 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 are uh, you know, uh, having this dramatic closing stretch where they're killed. No, it was Nakajima beat the living shit out of this guy for like 17 minutes. Jake Lee survived a, a, a brain buster and then he came back, hit him in the, with the boot to the face and beat him. So from that standpoint, interesting match structure. Good match. Can't call it a great match. I'd probably go three and a half, three and three quarters, somewhere in that neighborhood. Cage match has it at 8.11, so they like it a little bit better than I did, but same same basic neighborhood. And uh, Jake Lee's next opponent's going to be Marafuji. So he should get by Marafuji as well. Uh, you never know, I guess, but he should get by Marafuji as well. And uh, And there you go. So Jake Lee. You're reigning and defending. Hayata is your new junior champion. My boy Amakusa gets knocked off here in 13 minutes. I always like these uh, Amakusa matches much better than everybody else. This guy just connects with me. I, I just, he's dynamic. He's interesting. He has a quiet charisma. And I have no use for Hayata. I mean, just none. I'm so sick of these former Rattels guys. Uh, none of them do a thing for me. Um, but uh, at any rate, there you go. We have a new uh, junior champion. We also have new junior tag team champions as the uh, good-looking guy representatives. Tarasuke and Yohei defeat Eita and Yoshinari Ogawa. These... Noah Jr. tag title matches have not been good lately. I mean, Ogawa's still Ogawa, and, you know, 
but the match is just they 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 they're just not good. I don't know what it is. It's just there's no energy. There's no excitement. They just they don't have any juice. And this was another example of that. But uh, look, the good-looking guys unit, along with Jake Lee, this continues uh, their push. It's funny how good-looking guys and just five guys. I mean, there's just so many comparisons that can be made, and, and they're b- both of these units being pushed here at the same time in the two different companies with two new world champions. Jake Lee, Sonata, and Yuji Nagata are your three, uh, you know, big-time world champions in Japan right now. That's just weird. It's just really fucking weird. And Yuji Nagata is the triple crown champion. Jake Lee is the GHC champion. And Sonata is the IWGP champion. If someone woke up out of a coma, right, from like 2013 or something, it'd be like you'd think Nagata would be the IWGP, Sonata would be the triple crown, and Jake Lee would be the GHC, right? Or Jake Lee would be the triple crown. I don't They all hold the wrong titles. This is my point. And it's a weird batch of world champions. But good-looking guys are collecting belts now. One belt they didn't collect was the national title. Jack Morris comes up short against El Hijo del Dr. Wagner Jr. You know, I'll say this about these two guys. First of all, this may have been the best match of the night. This kicked ass. They did a bunch of, uh, they did a big table spot. Um, They did a bunch of uh, very flashy, high-risk, high spots in this match, including the table spot, which was the big spot in the match. But I want to make a larger point. So, El Hijo del Dr. Wagner Jr. retains the title. Match went almost 25 minutes. It was the longest match in the show. It was arguably the best match in the show. Either this or the main event. I'd rate it right around the same. Three and three quarters, somewhere in there. Can't kill you if you go notebook. I didn't, it didn't quite get there for me, but it was close. But these are two guys that Noah has really found that, are di- that were diamonds in the rough and have been great additions to the roster. Both of these guys. And they didn't have to steal them from other companies. They didn't, these guys didn't have to jump from it. Jack Morris, they just fucking, nobody listened to this. I'd be surprised if there's 10 people listening to this who knew who Jack Morris was before he came to Noah. I mean, they just plucked him from total obscurity. Okay. And he's been good. He's got a good look. He can work a little. Rev Pro's starting to book him now. So his career's starting to pick up some steam. This Jack Morris acquisition has totally worked out for both him and pro wrestling Noah. Now, El Hijo del Dr. Wagner Jr., he's been with Noah longer than you think. I mean, he's been there for like five years now and, you know, took little breaks during the pandemic, you know, because things got stupid, right? But he was just a, a, you know, an independent luchador for years, for years, just bouncing around the indies. And again, Noah brings him in. And he's been, you know, he's slowly moved up the card and he's been nothing but solid. And he's very often one of my favorite guys when they have these big shows. He's one of the, he's very often, almost always, one of the top performers on the show. And that played out again here. So um, I could definitely recommend that match, national title match, and the main event. Um, I like the junior match too, you know, because I like Amaka. Yeah, I don't, I've not, I don't like Hayata, but I, 
you know, Kate, that match is sitting at 5.79 on Cage Match. And I thought it was a better match than that. This was better than a two and a half star match or a two and three quarter star match. I, I you know, I, it was like a three, three and a quarter star match. And it was a title change. So um, I would watch that too. I would skip the junior tag title match though. That's a waste of time. Now the heavyweight tag title match, uh, Shohei Taniguchi and Takashi Sagara, they win the tag titles from Daike Yanaba and Masakitamiya. Um, now that Taniguchi win over Sagara makes more sense. And, you know, because they were going to form the tag team and they built a story off of that. So I'll cut them a break. I know I buried them for that result when it happened, but Taniguchi's getting his once every three years push. That's what's happening right now. You know, he's just, if you've been following Noah for a long time, he gets a push like once every three or four years and, and you know, and this is it. So, um, the match was pretty good. It was okay. You know, and, and the crowd popped for it. Hey, the, the crowd was into that. The other notable thing about the undercard was Alejandro, Dragonbane, and Drillistico defeating Alpha Wolf, Lanzaloff, and uh, no relation, and uh, Extreme Tiger. Extreme Tiger got legit knocked out in this thing. He took three straight flippy doos from the opponents and he he I think he got knocked out by the first one where he took a couple of knees to the to the to the midsection and get the wind knocked out of him and maybe his head hit the mat I don't know what happened but he he froze up like he stiffened up like when a UFC fighter gets knocked out but that the other two guys were in the middle of doing the spot and I guess they didn't notice and they both dived on him and then time stood still as everybody knew something was wrong and the referee rang the bell so they got the stretcher out and they took him out of there. I don't know his condition, but everybody looked concerned, including the opponents. And then what they did is like they restarted the match. Like they announced the other team as the winners, but then they started another match. And I thought they were, I thought it was two different match. Now cage match has it listed as one result as a two on three handicap match. I, the way I interpreted it as I was watching the show was, Alejandro, Dragonbane, and Drillistico won the six-man, and then they did a second match to fill the rest of the time, uh, which they then won as well. But cage match has it listed as one match. I guess it really doesn't matter. What matters is Extreme Tiger uh, got knocked out. I don't know his condition. Hopefully, he's okay. And uh, otherwise, when you know they book these Lucha guys on these Noah shows, I think it's a nice change of pace when they do that. So... Um, I like I like when they book that stuff. And Timothy Thatcher was back on this show. I'm not going to go through all the the uh, prelim matches, but um, it was Hideki Suzuki, Saxon Huxley, and Timothy ha- Timothy Thatcher winning a six man over Akatoshi Saito, Sean Legacy, and and Yoshiki Inamura. So um, that was a pre show match. So uh, Trashy Tim is back. I thought he was done. He's not done. He's back. Um, it wasn't a bad show. It was pretty good. And I feel like it's dangerous to say this, but I feel like Noah has been booked better now that Muto is gone. And I don't know if that'll sustain. You know, the junior tag situation is still a mess, but at least they put it on the good looking guy team, right? Which makes sense. Jake Lee survives his first defense so they're going to give him a chance to breathe with the title you may as well if you're going to put the title on the guy give him a chance okay 
Um, I like the national title stuff. So there seems to be, the booking seems to be, like during that Muto era, there was no rhyme or reason to any of the booking decisions. It was just, it was all over the place. And it was hard to predict anything because it was like, well, who do you think will win this? And you're just like, fuck, I don't know. They do random title changes. Weird people beat, you know, people win who shouldn't. It doesn't make, you know, a lot of what they did made no sense. Couldn't make any sense of it. Now I feel like I'm more confident when I look at these Noah lineups and, you know, I'm like, oh, everyone who I thought would win did. And for the most part, and I can kind of see where they're going with some things and I can kind of see why they're making some of the booking decisions they're making. You know, right down to something little like Jake Lee pinning Timothy Thatcher in that, you know, uh, undercard match a few months ago. You know, do I think Jake Lee should have been in something more important to set up his title match with with Kia, with Kiyomiya and his title win? Other than a pre-show six-man tag? I do, but when you look with hindsight, he beat Timothy Thatcher with the boot to the face, which he's been beating everybody with. Thatcher then disappeared for months. So it made sense to beat that guy, you know, to, you know, and, and since he was going to go away anyway for him to take the pin. I know these are little things, but when it comes to a company like Noah, which hasn't been booked well in so long, those little baby steps and those little booking wins and these little things that make sense are encouraging. Because then when you watch the shows... You can invest more because you feel like what you're watching, like the results you're watching are, are, are mattering. As opposed to the Muto era where it was like, doesn't fucking, none of this matters. Because this booking is so scattershot and unpredictable that trying to make sense of it is trying to make sense of, of coin flips. It's just, this is essentially randomness. It's a waste of time. It's like trying to make sense of dice rolls or randomizers, you know? Now you can watch these shows and sink your teeth into them and think your way through and, you know, you see a result and kind of maybe try to figure where it's going to go or, or try to figure why they made the decisions they made because the last couple of months worth of shows, there's been some rhyme or rhyme and reason to the booking and the booking decisions that they've been making. And, um, to me, that's a good thing. You know, there's nothing worse than wrestling that is poorly booked. It's just, fr- it's an exercise in frustration trying to be a fan. So that was Noah and Sendai. That's another great flagship. Semi-solo effort. Big thanks to the producer, Andrew Rich. Not only for stepping in to help me out with the New Japan but for helping to put this show all together. Rich will be back next week. And that's it for me. Take care. Cheering at pro wrestling shows in Japan is back. And 2023 is already shaping up to be a big year in the history of pro res. That's why you should listen to the Emerald Flow Show. From the Royal Road to the Green Mat, Paul and Gerard take you into the world of all Japan pro wrestling and pro wrestling Noah. Not only do we analyze events... But we examine business, who is getting over, what angles are working, or not. Occasionally, we take a look at other Japanese promotions like DDT and Zero One. 
So if you're looking for more coverage of the world of Japanese wrestling, check out the Emerald Flow Show on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network, available on all of your favorite podcast apps.